The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom, now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 76 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Realizing if the comics market had imploded in 1995, that George Perez could have had a great career illustrating Where's Waldo books. I'm Adam. And it's Michael's birthday tonight, and as we record this episode, we decided to give him the night off just so we can go watch Across the Spider-Verse in celebration, but we'll be doing some partying of our own this time around with a guest whose boundless enthusiasm for 90s comics and Wizard Magazine earned him an invitation to get geeky. From the Panels on Pages podcast and editor of Catalyst Magazine, it's the man known as Dalibor, aka Indie Hype Man. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I am uh, I'm a big fan. I'm I'm catching up on the back catalog and uh, very proud to be here, especially for this issue. But let's talk a little bit about your magazine Catalyst. Why the focus on indie comics? What is it about that world that excites you so much? I think indie comics has a lot of incredible stuff that a lot of people don't know about. I really, really focus more on like small press, self-published stuff, especially. Uh, I know a lot of people when they think in indie, they go immediately to image, maybe boom, you know, now, you know, vault is kind of getting up there as well. But I, I still see all that as mainstream. That's like, if you're going to go to the comic shop and see it there, that to me is not quite indie enough. <laughs> like there are people who I, I featured in Catalyst that are now getting into Diamond. They're now getting into comic oh. shops and i'm like that's awesome that's fantastic to me like i love seeing that before it kind of takes off i you know my my cousin called me a tastemaker and i was like i like that i like the concept of that because i'm like i see a lot of cool stuff I, I over the course of the pandemic and all that stuff i found so many indie creators that i had never heard of some people were in their fourth fifth twelfth issue and i'm like i thought i was in like i thought i was connected and I knew things. And I was like, if I don't know, other people for sure don't know. So I, I love Wizard Magazine. And I was like, I would love to have a magazine that has this stuff featured. And then I kind of took a page out of uh, Heavy Metal as well. So I featured, you know, full issues of the comic as well. So, it, you know, people can get to get a taste and often there's a campaign running. So I have, it's a live PDF that goes out. It's digital only. So people and people can go straight to the campaign or straight to the website to pick up the book. That's awesome. Yeah, that's so wonderful that you were you were that inspired. And you do your know, great interviews on your podcast in particular. I know that recently uh, you had a whole wizard conversation that I don't even think you were anticipating from the interview. A former a staffer was on your show and he's been doing his own comics for years. And, wait, yeah. you worked at Wizard and you guys just go off for a half hour <laughs> about Wizard. I'm like, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah, that was it was a very pleasant surprise. It was one of those things that, you know, people have gone through so many different stages of their lives that it's interesting to see where they're at now you know there are people who are just doing indie comics now that have a bunch of like marvel history or dc history and like you know mainstream you know game history that you just don't know because it's like that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about my comic right now but it's like when you get pried out a little bit and people reveal some interesting things 
Absolutely. Now, you know, this is where you're at right now. You're being the indie hype man. You're spreading the word. But we want to find out how you discovered comics in the first place, what you were loving about Wizard Magazine and everything going on in the 90s. So why don't you tell us your origin story? Well, I started with comics back in the home country. I'm from Bosnia originally. Uh, I had my first taste with, I'm presuming some sort, I mean, all I can remember is vague images, but it was definitely, you know, like a detective pulp style, black and whites. We call them Romani. In my mind, I feel like it would translate to like romance books, but it's not, like they're not at all, <laughs> but that's what they were called. And they, they were just like the first taste of it. When I got to America, X-Men, Spider-Man animated series, Power Rangers was really big. So superheroes was really on my mind. And uh, I actually went on a road trip with my uncle who was a truck driver. Statistically, most uncles that come from the Balkans are. Uh, but uh, we stopped at a gas station and there were comic books. There were two that like really hit me. And one was Fantastic Four 2099. And I know that I'm also, you're starting the 2099 journey in the back catalog that I'm on. And I knew nothing about it. Like, I'm like, uh, there's this robot. I have no idea what's going on here. And then there was Spider-Man. Now, it was a different Spider-Man. He had a different costume, but I was like, we're going to go with Spider-Man. Uh, and I always forget the issue, but I feel like it's 416. Amazing Spider-Man 416. I'm, I'm like getting more confident with that. I'm fairly sure <laughs> of that. But it was the first appearance, I believe, first appearance of Delilah. Uh, and just the, the the new costume, which I loved. I love Ben Riley's costume. And the fact, the style of the book really like grabbed me, the, the, the lettering specifically. So Delilah had like a sing-songy, cadence and they had her like emphasis words you know normally they just bold them but they had like like uh, calligraphy done so it was like different colors and they looked really really good and I was just like wow like I didn't even know they could do stuff like this like, this is so interesting it wasn't just the story that was grabbing me it was like the the process of production uh, which I, I love that's my thing like half my shelves back here are, are production books sketchbooks all sorts of stuff like that well, I find that funny that that was appealing to you because uh, on our recent bonus episode where we were covering the Heroes Return event at Marvel, that was the criticism from our guest Peter from the Marvelous podcast. He's just like, they're using all these crazy fonts. I can barely read it, you know, so it's kind of funny for you. You're like, no, that's awesome. <laughs> I loved it. Heroes Return is such, like, honestly, I liked Heroes Reborn. I'm one of the weirdos. Like, I liked the whole era. I, I think I was really starting to buy, like, regularly right as Heroes Reborn ended and as Return was happening. So, like, late 96, I think I had a couple. And then 97 is when I really started to pick up regularly. And, uh, I like, I was, you know, there for the Heroes Returning. And, like, there is an issue of X-Men where, you know, they take the new kids out, out to town and they go to a mall and they see it, you know, the news reports start hitting. Like Jean's there. She's like, oh, the, the like wave of relief and happiness from people. And I'm like, I feel that. Like, I feel they weren't there. Like I was reading and they're like, I feel that same moment. Well, talk to me. How did Wizard Magazine then enter the picture for you? And what were your favorite parts as you were reading it back then? Wizard was probably the first thing I got after that single issue of Spider-Man. Oh. And my cousin had an issue. It was a Spider-Man cover. The other cover was Angela. I always forget the issue number. I feel like it was issue 68, uh, Spider-Man cover by 
I never know how to pronounce his last name, Ringo. <laughs> I never know how to pronounce his actual last name. And then they had a, a Angela cover, a painted Angela cover that's still like one of my favorites to this day. Yeah. Uh, but I was just fascinated by like the breadth of stuff in there. It's just the the different books. And I was like, wait, so Spider-Man's, he's going to be the other guy again. And I'm like, what's going on? Like, cause I had no clue about the clone saga. You know, the, the clone saga hadn't happened in the show yet. So I had zero clue. So I'm learning about the clone saga through wizard magazine. Everything I knew at the time, I was like, Judas traveler. Who's Judas traveler. What's going on? Like, I don't know who these people are. Like uh, everything I learned about the, the, the comic books of that era was from wizard just curious obviously these days you know indie books are a big deal to you so as you started moving away from the mainstream what were some of the early indie books you started discovering the first kind of like truly indie like not image or anything like that book was uh, the horseman by jibamole anderson he's a local guy here in chicago he has uh, done tons of books I've described him and many have described him as, as a pioneer in Afrofuturism. It is a really, really good, deep and interesting series. It, I, I find it hard to describe because I have read it probably two or three times now and I'm still just starting to get it. It's a very, like, it's, I don't want to say it's like too heady, but it's very much like it, it calls for analysis and discussion and, and like thought. And that's, I think, rare in a lot of situations. So it, it's a really, really good series. But that was the first one I, I got because my girlfriend at the time, uh, he was her former teacher. Oh. And she had these issues. He had given them to her or something like that. And I was like, oh, like I didn't, like she wasn't even really, really into comics. She just had these issues. Like if you want them, you could have them. I was like, yeah. It, it was just like, oh, this is really interesting, really good art. And she's like, oh yeah, like you could like go talk to him. Like he was my teacher because I was going to the Illinois Institute of Art in Schaumburg, which no longer exists, but he he was still a teacher there. So like I walked up to him in, you know, in between classes. I was like, hey, like my girlfriend said, you wrote these. And he's like, yeah. And he tells me this whole story because this was 2004. And he tells me the story about uh, how in Daredevil at the time, Joe Quesada had introduced the Sangre. I think that's what they were called or the Sangria or something like that. Uh, and it was based on the Sangria religion. But a lot of the characters were like straight copies. And he, and he, tell, he tells me this and I still think this should have been done, but I don't think he ever did it. But he tells me, I think I'm going to make t-shirts that when I go to the next Wizard World, I'm gonna. It's just gonna say, "We know what you did, Joe." <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Like, yeah, I was so I was so excited because I was like, I'm seeing this like like behind the scenes stuff, like kind of drama. And I was like, this is fantastic. Here's the thing. I know with indie comics back in the day, especially a lot of them were mail order, right? People are getting them printed themselves and you got to mail them back, mail them out. And uh, hey, there were some letters coming into Wizard as well. So that's why we're going to open up Willie Lumpkin's Mailbag. Matthew Ronald from Montreal, Quebec, Canada asks a question to Jim McLaughlin. He says, dear Jim, do you yourself read Wizard on a monthly basis? And Jim replies, yep, I read it pretty much cover to cover, although I usually skip the price guides and I have to read Magic Words since I do the column three months in advance. By the time an issue hits, I've usually forgotten most of what I've written about. Damn, those dead brain cells. <laughs> a little peek behind the curtain there because yeah it, the interesting thing is that was actually revealed to us uh jim mclaughlin 
a lot of people who are real deep readers of Wizard know that in the fine print, there were jokes and he wrote most of those jokes, whether it was legal text or whatever else. So he was definitely in the nitty gritty of the magazine on a monthly basis. The next letter here quickly, Jenny Anderson of Kennesaw, Georgia, asked for tips on how to draw Gen 13 characters and gets a pretty official response here. She says, Wizard, I'm a big fan of Gen 13 and I was wondering if you could get a hold of the inker to ask him how the heck he knows where to put all the shadows on the Gen 13 costumes. I can never get it right when I draw them. And so, Jim responds, We got a hold of the anchor, a Mr. Alex Garner, and asked him. He said, The key is to be aware of the light. Picture a metal pinball. The point at which the light hits it is the brightest point. Since a pinball is shiny, that point is going to be very bright, but very narrow. Points away from where the light hits it will be less bright and eventually fade shadow. Most artists just have an instinct for light and shadow, and I've done so many lines I'm practically on autopilot. But if you study photos and look at a variety of subjects, look at a leather jacket in addition to the pinball, you'll start to know where the shadows go. I love that. Use... A leather jacket as your reference point for how light hits an object. I don't know. That's a very complicated thing. I've done life life drawing classes. Like fabrics are by far the hardest thing to get and reflective fabrics. Get out of here. Yeah. I don't know. My mom's an artist. I did not spend too much time under her wig. I would say up until about fifth grade. And then I'm like, I'm going to do my own thing. I start drawing my, old, my own comics. Everything's out of proportion and terrible. So <laughs> I should have stuck with mom. She could have taught me some things. Just like dad, always working on a car, could have taught me how to fix my own car. Never learned. But if I had learned, perhaps it would have made some headlines in my local paper. Can you believe it? Adam knows how to fix a car. Come on down. But we are going to check out our... All right, our first story here. DC introduces Superman Red, Superman Blue, announces that the electric blue Superman doesn't die, he multiplies. A 64-page one-shot with a 3D cover gimmick will kick off an arc where, thanks to shenanigans by the cyborg Superman and Toy Man, the Man of Steel splits into two separate beings. And as Wizard reports, quote, the two Supermen operate independent of each other and adding a competitive twist, both are committed to the idea that they are the one true Superman. It's mentioned that this is a callback to a story from the 50s where the same thing happened and that it will lead into the last son of krypton getting his old powers and costume back so we gotta ask you man how do you feel about this era of the energy-based superman was splitting him in two jumping the shark were they pushing it too far so i was not reading superman at this time but thanks to the uh reporting of wizard magazine i got to kind of sit in the sidelines i loved the costume the costume outstanding brilliant the fact that they're bringing it back for current john kent stories love it i couldn't wait for it to be done honestly <laughs> i i thought it, it was just pushing it too far out of his normal like operation and the, the other abilities that he got suddenly made him less relatable right this was no longer the story of an alien trying to be a man and trying like, you know, putting on his human costume and doing his best just to be a regular guy. Now he had to even focus just to not be energy. Like this was, this was now transcending states of existence and it became way less relatable. Like I said, it's it, Superman is already kind of a, a heavy target for relatability and to, to then even push him further away from that. I think I'm glad the millennium giants came around and uh, finished all that up for us. <laughs> it, it did create one of the greatest moments in justice league, which I recently just completed that entire JLA run from the nineties. 
it created one of the greatest moments in JLA. Flash goes to stop like a mugger or something, and he like flips back. He's like, "Wait, who?" And he's like, "Oh, it's you. You got this." And it's Superman back in the the classic red and blues. And I was like, "Fantastic! That's a great moment." Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm sure that Grant Morrison was just counting the days. He's like, "Okay, finally, I go and use the real Superman." Good, good. Now. As a fun addition to this story, Wizard had Jim Lee, Eric Larson, and Daryl Banks each redesign Superman's costume with their own ideas. So I'm very curious, which of these appeals to you most? We'll be posting it to social media for all you listeners to make your own decisions. But based on what you're seeing, what would you have gone with? So I actually wrote this down because... I stared at those images back in the day. It's funny. I remember at the time liking Larson's more so than the others, but now, especially kind of seeing Larson and his like evolution, it's it's colored in a different way for me. I like Jim Lee's because it feels like it would be a Connell, Connor Kent kind of like grown up costume. Like it feels like it's taking the the jacket kind of punk look and going the next level. Like I'm gonna be the grown up Superman, but he still got his arms showing. He still wants to like flex a little bit for the ladies, you know? Yeah, I mean that that's the one thing that jumps out at me the most is the sleeves on the Jim Lee design, and he's got two Superman logos on the shoulders like a military insignia, you know. So it's, yeah. Jim Lee loves that military look on his character. So to me, if he just had extended out the arms just to the full blue, I think. I would have gone with his as well. Although like the, the Daryl Banks one is just a little too shiny for me. It's a little, it looks like a movie Superman costume and the Eric yeah. Larson one isn't bad, but it, it actually reminds me of when uh, the just imagine Stan Lee series, when they do a Superman there, that yeah, Stan yeah. Lee created, it's very similar to what they come up with there. So for sure, for sure. It also very much ends up looking like one of Larson's own characters. And I don't know if it was created before or after this, but there's a character in the dragon books that like looks very similar to this oh okay all right well why don't you take us into our next story here so sticking with dc news earthquake rocks gotham city in batquake teases an upcoming storyline in february 1998 which will create crossover into all the batman books a practice that had been suspended by batman editorial for over a year it's revealed while arkham asylum is built to be quake proof blackgate prison is not allowing many foes of the dark knight to escape but that's not the real issue As writer Chuck Dixon explains, its destruction is on a biblical scale. Batman is faced with something he can't do a damn thing about until this new villain, who we haven't even named yet, claims responsibility for this earthquake. So this is this is a story. When I first read this headline, I'm like, oh, is this no man's land? But I, it's too early. It's slightly too early because that, that I think that was in 99. I think maybe this leads into it. I, I'm not super yeah. up on all that. Is it? OK, so this this was probably uh, I forget what, what it was called. Um, Cataclysm. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Going into Aftershock, going into No Man's Land. No Man's Land, I thought was fantastic. I never read Cataclysm or Aftershock. But do you like the idea of Batman dealing with a crisis on this larger scale? Or do you prefer the more like street level one-on-one villain pursuit adventure? I think this is a good exercise to take Batman through every once in a while. Like I think No Man's Land definitely did what it needed to do. It made him kind of form stronger bonds with the what would now be called the Bat family. He had some really interesting and important moments with Helena during that run he had uh i mean we got the new batgirl out of that cassie's one of my favorites all time a lot of things happened because of that and a lot of like interesting scenarios came out of it 
But I, when I read a Batman story, I prefer something where it's more methodical, more thought provoking. Like I want him to have to think his way out of it. Like you can't think your way out of an earthquake. <laughs> like there's just no way around that. <laughs> it's an earthquake. It's going like things are going to happen. Like, you know, there's no way for him to beat that. Uh, whereas I liked Batman Eternal, you know, one of the more recent stories uh, from the new 52 era, which was just this really long tail it was a year-long 52 issue focused thing where somebody was pulling all these strings and making him overworked and making him just like really kind of chate like just grasping at straws to try to figure out who was messing with him and that's the kind of thing i like i like where it's like somebody is controlling the situation and you know the mystery villain can be there you could always have the mystery villain and there was a mystery villain and it tied into other things you know like i i really think batman eternal was probably one of the best things out of the bat books in the new 52 but like mystery villain makes like massive crisis that's a superman story that just always you know that's a superman or a justice league story that's what i'm it's, saying yeah it feels like when batman's with the justice league let him handle that stuff when he's in yeah. gotham let it be more you know more personal yeah, that's and that's that's why I think you get the two kind of the two flip sides of Batman, like not even just Batman and Bruce Wayne, but like the, the two sides of the Batman coin. You have the protector, the Dark Knight of Gotham, and you have the superhero. Um, and that's why I think in film, the closest we got to that was uh, Bat Batfleck, the best representation of superhero Batman. I, I did. Yeah, I did enjoy actually Batfleck quite a bit. But I, I would say speaking of the movies, like when I think about it, it's like that's why for me, Dark Knight Rises was just a little too much uh, in this vein and similar yeah. with the end of the Batman, which I liked so much and that it felt like they tacked on like this flood and everything else. And I was like, OK, now it's a little too much. I thought they were going to be really, really brave. When I saw like explosions and the bridges go, I was like, oh, are they just going to like leave us off with no man's land and we got to pick this like we got yeah. the penguin story i mean like imagine this penguin show in no man's land like that's such a crazy like i would i was excited for that idea and then by the end they're like oh yeah like the army corps is coming in to fix the bridges like it was just like here's some <laughs> like five six lines of dialogue to like make it make this all go away by the next thing yeah so there you go now, next story here is really interesting. It's Deceased Editor's Ashes Mixed in Marvel Comics, Inc. Now, this is a short news item about the last wishes of late Marvel editor Mark Grunewald to have his ashes mixed in with a print run of the Squadron Supreme Trade paperback, which had an Alex Ross cover, very beautiful, as Grunewald's widow explains. Quote, Mark requested it in his will. I'd known of it since we read our wills to each other before we were married. When he originally read it to me, he had a smirk on his face, but I knew it was what he really wanted. Mixing his ashes into the ink, making him an actual part of a comic book, has shown that passion and dedication can live on even after you're gone. Just like, wow. That is something that obviously Squadron Supreme, I, I consider it his best work. I think it's fantastic. I love rereading it. I have all like the individual issues, you know, I've collected over the years. Have you ever considered being buried with a comic book, having your ashes spread on some sort of pop culture landmark? Like, has that ever crossed your mind? I, I am donating my body to science. Okay. Uh, I've thought about all sorts of different ways. Uh, <laughs> right around the time when my wife and I were discussing that and kind of like what our plans would be down the line, I saw a lot of ads and articles and new stuff about people being like opting to be buried in these like pods where a tree would grow out of them and stuff. Like they essentially turning themselves into permanent per fertilizer. Uh, and I was like, well, that's an interesting concept. But I'm like, I feel like I would at least cover two or three trees. Like there's a lot of me, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I think uh, that's an interesting way to go about it. I didn't know about this. I actually 
don't ever remember reading this part in this issue. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't know about this until I actually read Squadron Supreme. Uh, so the dice for me picked uh, the Squadron Supreme Omnibus, which I got last year. So like it happened to get picked. I had not that version, but I had the second print. Okay. And this is how I knew because in the second print, they had a specific little box added to the print that says, this is the second printing. This does not contain the ashes. And I was just like, <laughs> I'm sorry, the what? <laughs> I was just blown away. That, yeah, that, that was a very, very like wild thing to find out. But I get it. Like, I get it. If it's especially if it's something that you put a lot of yourself into you, your, your spirit into, like, really, I think when you write, when you create, you put yourself into the work. It makes sense. Honestly, it really does. Like, I, I could I would expect uh, an Alan Moore or a Neil Gaiman to do a similar thing. <laughs> That'd be amazing. It made me wonder if he was inspired by the Kiss super special that Marvel did in the 70s, because I have that comic where their blood was put into the ink vat when that issue was printed. And so I'm just wondering, that. it's like, well, I could do that with this comic I've worked so hard on. That could be a lasting legacy. I was like, that'd be interesting. It could be, it could be for sure. A Squadron Supreme Omnibus, if anyone's like interested in getting into that book, that is such a well-crafted book book a lot of collections kind of can go either way right they're just kind of like we slap the issues in there we moved on whatever once in a while you get a good one where it's like here's a page explaining what happened you know in this series before this point that you're picking up this one you start with the introduction of the squadron sinister and like the notion that a squadron supreme exists and it's this whole lifespan of these characters through their perspective because when I first flipped through it, it caught the supreme power, ult the ultimate power uh, back end. So like issues seven, eight, and nine. And I was like, why only the back end? Because that's when they come in. Nothing else before from their perspective matter. And I was like, that's such an interesting way to put a book together. Like if they were never to bring Squadron Supreme back into, into the Marvel Universe, I think this stands as like a perfect tome of like, you could read it all, get it all really organized and, and well-crafted. That's great that they did that because trying to find those old Avengers issues, that's going to be tough <laughs> and everything else. So oh, I was first introduced to them in the return issues five and six. And they were like, you're not the real Avengers. And I was like, who are these guys? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, take us into our next piece here. So Wizard polled their AOL users, oh man, AOL users, <laughs> this month to ask what Marvel title they would like to see revived in the Heroes Return era. The Punisher was the most requested with 28% of the vote, followed by Nick Fury with 16%. The New Warriors and Doctor Strange tied with 15% each. The Defenders earned 13%. Green Goblin got 6%, only 6 While Inhumans accounted for just 2% being beaten out by the other category with 5 Wow, that's rough. That's rough. Sorry, Inhumans. Yeah, but I, I, the when I saw Green Goblin on the list, I'm like, are they talking about the recent Green Goblin who had just, you yeah. know, who was the younger guy? Is that they the one hit I, back? I, would I would think so because that had a fan base. I loved that book. I was so interested in like, oh, this is like the reporter's nephew. It's like this no name, nobody character that stumbles across Goblin Tech, and I was like. <laughs> This has to happen more often in the Marvel universe. So many mad scientists and, you know, super people that have these suits and all sorts of stuff all over the place. How has this not been done before and more often since this, like in the late nineties, early two thousands, you got once, once in a while, somebody's like, oh, like, you know, I bought the stilts, stilt man suit from somebody and I'm out here. I'm not even the real stilt man. I just thought I could get some quick cash. 
but it, it like this feels like it should happen so much more often can you think of like a marvel title from this era or just from the 90s that hasn't been revived yet that you would want to see back that i would even now that i would want to see back yeah like that, that you would just say hey what if what if they did a revival of this character <sighs> from the 90s man there was there was a lot going on in the 90s yeah there's so many um, to choose from but let's just say it feels like here and there they're starting to like reappear and so i'm like oh how many of these have already been done like for me what came to mind immediately is night watch the spawn ripoff do you know what i'm talking oh about god yes i do remember <laughs> that i had those issues yeah and i was always just like perplexed i'm like why is spider-man in this like why does he look like spawn like i didn't understand i never read it but i bought it because i had just like various books you know i'd go to a shop and just pick stuff out yeah and i i never understood that book i ended up reading it years later and i was like this is a weird book it's like it's a living costume like so but it's but it's techno organic kind of and all this stuff like there, there are so many elements to it you're like okay so i mean it's just skirting that edge of spawn without any demons in hell you know <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i think i would like a really solid thunderbolts book to come back i think like they've done it a couple times i think it just never catches on as strong. Like I personally believe in the idea of like the universal consciousness, right? I think, uh, you know, people have ideas and other people execute them. That's why you have those people who are like, I thought of a Tesla 10 years ago. That's like, yeah, but you didn't execute, but you put it out <laughs> in the universe and somebody else executed. That's how I see it. Uh, you know, I, I feel like I came up with a bunch of stuff. I take full credit for anti-venom and ultimate venom uh, because I, my first thing, my first like comic book that I created, I was watching the Black Costume Saga on Fox Kids and I went to school and I was like, and I literally just traced a Ben Riley Spider-Man, but I made it all white with the black logo. And I was like, it's a symbiote, but it's a like human built suit. It's like a built by a corporation or military. So I take credit for both anti-venom and, uh, and uh, ultimate venom. Yeah. But you said Thunderbolts was what you were trying to figure out what, what they could do now or, you know, what a revival yeah, version of that would be. Thunderbolts would be a good one. Um, I would like to see a good new Warriors book. They tried that 98, like with a new team. I think that was just not the era for new characters. Like they had, uh, was it pa pa Paladin? He had the like Bridal of Hera or whatever, or, or, or Artemis or whatever. That was such an interesting character. I was like, why don't we get more of this guy? I don't think they've ever brought him back since. It's, hmm. it's one of those like, just a random 90s character that they created that has just never made a resurgence. Uh, like certain ones like Maggot, Maggot still shows up every once in a while. I have, I'm a big fan of Maggot. I think that was a very interesting character, but like, even he comes back like can we bring back these like <laughs> more interesting characters like maggots just another mutant yeah but, like this dude had like a greek artifact giving him abilities it was so interesting and like the only time i ever read him fully was in the contest of champions 2 uh, from uh, 1998 or whatever i was like oh and, and then it was kind of the perfect contest that they ended up having because x-force and, and new warriors decided we're just gonna play basketball <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome wow well closing out our marvel news here uh agreement reached to settle marvel's bankruptcy debts discloses some details on how marvel has settled their financial affairs after the tumultuous year dealing with that bankruptcy so it says marvel will be paying 385 million dollars in cash to its creditors which is only a poor portion of the 816 million total that they owed at this time now additionally marvel is going to be giving up ownership of the panini stick 
liquor company, which they had purchased, but retaining Fleer Skybox, their trading card division. However, this conflicts with a report last issue that we were talking about stating that the trading card manufacturer was now in possession of Chase Manhattan Bank. So Chase was supposedly owned Fleer Skybox at this point. So I don't know what was the truth there, but uh, it is also Mm. mentioned that the future of Marvel's action figure division toy biz remains uncertain. So stay tuned for the reports. Many of you know how that turned out. Oh, Amirad, he had the money, he had the power, he had the influence. But either way, uh, it's really interesting uh, just to see that, okay, here's the report. They're going to be okay, guys. And like they, they reassure you like they have all the way along. Our comics division was not the issue. Our comics division was fine. It was everything else that we overextended. So uh, did you have any thoughts about the bankruptcy? Were you, do you remember hearing about that just as you're getting in? Or did you miss I- it? I remember hearing about the bankruptcy in the late 90s. I want to say like after it kind of fizzled out because by the time I started hearing about that was when people were like, oh, uh, Blade just made all this money and like, you know, Marvel's bankruptcy woes may finally be over, that kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, they, I don't know. I was also very young. I think I was just end of the 90s. I was, you know, midway through high school. So like I didn't know what a bankruptcy was. You know, our education <laughs> system is notorious for poorly teaching people about money. So we had no, I had no clue what a bankruptcy really meant. I thought a bankruptcy meant you were completely going out of business. That's how they showed it in, you know, TV stuff. Yeah. And like they said, you know, I read bankruptcy a couple of times and really relating to Marvel, but then they just stayed around. And I was like, I don't really understand this. And I just kind of, you know, didn't really think about it until later on when it's like, you start learning, like they sold everything off, you know, they were selling off the, the tables and (laughs) whatever, whatever they could just to keep, keep the lights on and uh it kind of shed new light on like why we got certain projects and didn't get certain projects and things like that yeah yeah very interesting time there have been whole books written about it so if you need the details you can find them but hey we're gonna get into some more details of this issue as we check out our table of contents so wizard issue 76 featuring a december 1997 cover date was published with two covers so the first was a mark silvestri the darkness cover which you've got over there on your side and according to the wizard big book of covers it was originally intended to be a Wolverine and Rogue cover by artist Kevin Lau, which was then bumped for the Top Cow icon instead. And really that cover itself never got past the sketch stages. So it was just kind of an idea. Kevin, can you do this? Sorry, which happened a lot. Now, it's hard to deny, though, the impact of the second cover by George Perez, where Captain America is gripping the unconscious body of the Red Skull in his fist. He just got this grimace on his face. And here is the fun fact fact about that one. So former Wizard staffer Andrew Carden, who we've had on the Wizard Files and part of some of our other events, he actually received the original art for this cover. So he has that George Perez art. He got it as a going away present when he was moving on from the magazine. And I just got the pictures from him. So we're going to share that with you all on social media. Take a look at the comparison of the original pencils to what, you know, the colored version on the magazine printing version looks like. So kind of cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Perez has, has always been one of my all-time favorites i think just the way he does every step of it like i was gonna say action but like action it's the it's the facial expressions like he can do subtle and he can do bombastic at the same time and expertly on every level damn shame and and a massive loss to the industry yeah sorry to have lost him but luckily we get to to talk about him a little bit more later on here just a moment i do want to mention that in this issue 
issue, because the Avengers returning and Heroes Return was such a big deal, they packed in an Avengers ID card. So probably a lot of you remember getting this back in the day and uh, putting it in your wallet and carrying it around being an official Avenger. Uh, there was also an X-Men poster. There was a Vampirella trading card. There was an order form for an exclusive issue of Divine Right with a variant cover. And of course, the ever-present AOL subscription disc. That was what they were doing for all the time that they needed to make people aware of the internet until we all just had it. They're like, okay, <laughs> nobody's signing up for AOL anymore. You'd be surprised. I found out recently that up until 2021, there was still something in the range of like 1,800 people still signed up. And I don't, I don't mean just signed up. I mean, using AOL to access the internet, <laughs> dial up and everything. Die hard, sticking it through. Oh. Uh, finally, inside, there was a mail-away offer for a wizard half-issue of Brandon Peterson's Arcanum from Top Cow. In this issue, we're going to talk about a little bit later, they get into all the Top Cow projects that were coming out in that style. And everybody on social media tells us, I've never heard of this book. But they seem to believe, oh, everybody's all about Arcanum. That, you're going to love it. And I'm like, mm, <laughs> I don't know. I, so uh, I knew Brandon Peterson by, at this point. I had learned about his stuff because he did a bunch of x-men stuff my uh, history of x-men purchases was uh like backdoor dealings in high school uh, a buddy of mine was trying to get rid of his collection so i'd bring some money we'd meet in a corner and he'd be like there's two <laughs> x-men issues give me the money uh, and he did a bunch of like fill-ins and like backup stories in like the 93 94 era of x-men Oh, uh, so I knew his like I knew of his style. He got less angular and more like flowy in like later on in this era. But I knew his style. So I was like, oh, I like really like Brandon Peterson. And I actually because I was going through my book and I saw the order form for the one half, which is still in here. I was like, oh, do I have that book? I went into my CLZ app and I was like, I don't. I literally went on eBay and I bought one. It should be here shortly. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us what you think then. Yeah, I'm curious to know. Now, the biggest news. News of issue 76, though, is that it marks a change in the official title of Wizard from the Guide to Comics. So the first 75 issues, it was the Guide to Comics. Now it is Wizard, the comics magazine. So this is a monumental occasion that you've arrived for. <laughs> I don't want to say this is the beginning of the end. This is the first left turn. This is when they started focusing on other things besides just comics more. And I think that's where later on, you know, in the 160s era, that's where it was no longer the guide to comics. It was it was like we're doing comics, but like there's other things happening. We're a magazine. Yeah. We got it. We got to We're going to satisfy our, our reader base in other ways as well. They had a trajectory in mind. That is for sure. Yep. Now, our first cover story in this issue, though, is a wizard Q&A with George Perez, which finds a legendary artist mapping out his return to producing monthly comics with the newly relaunched The Avengers. But Perez explains his desire to, quote, reestablish myself in the comic community. There are a lot of new readers out there who wonder, what's the big deal about George Perez? I'm not fast. I wish I were. But unfortunately, I obsess over my work. I'm very, very detail oriented. That's a part of my popularity, but it also keeps me from producing as much work as I'd like. Infinity Gauntlet, I didn't finish. There was a Titans graphic novel that I worked on for three years, but never finished. So and then Perez explains that he took the job inking over Dan Jurgens on his Teen Titans relaunch as a way of proving he could deliver for a monthly book 
on a consistent basis. And then he adds, quote, and I have to do the same thing with the Avengers. So that was his goal now. He's like, they're going to see full George Perez. Now, as fans are aware, he did prove himself very capable of delivering quality monthly work for quite a while on that title. So we started talking about it earlier, but do you have any thoughts on George Perez and his output here in the late 90s? Or do you go back further and revisit like the 80s and any of the 70s stuff? This was my first exposure to him, the Avengers book. When I saw that and the level of detail, I had seen the covers he had done before, right? The the, the Marvel like splash covers and stuff like that with the, the anniversary images. I saw those, you know, through again, through Wizard. And I remember being like, oh, that's so interesting, like that you could put that many characters on, you know, one one piece. And then when the uh, gatefold cover to Avengers number one came out and I looked at it and I was like, freaking how? <laughs> How do you fit? Like, that's everyone. Those are people I have never heard of. I have only read so much Avengers at this point, And I'm like, who is this Stingray? What's a Stingray? Is, <laughs> who are these people? And it was just the, the, like the breadth of characters in there. And I think that might actually be when I found out that Beast was an Avenger. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I didn't know Beast was an Avenger. That's so interesting. Cause you know, to me, he was an X-Men. When, you know, when I started reading X-Men, he was an X-Men. When I was watching the show, he was an X-Men. So like, I had no concept of him being an Avenger. And the notion that like Sandman was an Avenger and just like all these various people i was just blown away by the 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 like amount of characters that him and music were able to just like fit into the story like the fact that you have a moment with sandman and spider-man in this issue that is massive like so many things are happening but you still have a moment for spider-man to be like hey guys like i've got other things going on but if you need me call me (laughs) and then then sandman stands up for him he's like hey you know bad mouth spider-man he's a real hero and all this stuff you're like wow it's wild and it it, you know and and rage shown up and at that point i didn't know about rage but then later i found out that rage was a kid still and it was just like all this very interesting stuff i mean the amount of work he put in there uh and then the the immediate following storyline with uh morgan lefay and all that stuff like yeah he did such an incredible great job with that book i don't even remember who took over for him first on that series but i remember being fairly disappointed when he was no longer the artist on the book a hard like, act to like, follow yeah i mean i mean just the the this image is burned into my skull and I was really wanting it to happen in Age of Ultron, but in the Age of Ultron story in this run of Avengers, there is a moment where they they bust through, Thor is just, his whole outfit is ripped up and he's holding the hammer and he says, Ultron, we would have words with thee. And it's like, I'm getting shivers right now. Like, it's such a great moment. He renders it beautifully it's just, it's etched into my brain for the rest of time. Yeah. Well, George Rosie, he's one of those people that I took for granted how influential he was on me in my early days of reading because some of the earliest books I picked up were from his Wonder Woman run like there's this awesome like all red cover where I can silhouette it's Wonder Woman and Cheetah like jumping at each other I remember grabbing that off the shelf like oh this is dramatic this is awesome but also like his new Teen Titans run like that was some of the first back issues I was digging for was just grabbing a bunch of annuals and other you know random issues like I really was into that so he had a big influence on me but what I find interesting is his take on what he and Kurt Busiek are going to be doing with the Avengers and where they came from, because he shares his theory on why 
the Avengers sales were falling while their popularity was not what it once had been prior to Heroes Reborn. Because he says, quote, but I tried to copy the success of the X-Men. People were making the Avengers something they weren't. Way before the deal with Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld, they were imagizing the Avengers and it wasn't working. What I'm hoping to do with Kurt is instill the feeling of awe and old friends coming back. The sensation I'd like to give is the one I had when I saw the first Star Trek movie. Even though I didn't particularly care for the movie itself. When you saw Captain Kirk again for the first time, that's what I'm going for. I love that example. I think that's so fascinating. Just that peek inside what mattered to him, what affected him and media and things like that. But can you think of a classic comics character who had the biggest transformation in the early, mid, late 90s being imagized? Just that effect of we got to make him tough. We got to make him gritty. We got to make him violent. Like, is there one that comes to mind? Oh, I mean, if we're talking like the extremization of of the comic book medium in the 90s, the one that always sticks out of my head, I never read it, but I just, the like stark difference of it was so crazy to me that I didn't understand it was fate. Yes. When they did the fate book, I saw it in a wizard and I'd seen Dr. Fate in wizard before. So I was like, is that supposed to be the same dude? I was just like blown away because i was my first thought was thor uh, like right before the heroes reborn run, yeah when he was he was you know bare chested and for the one issue the actual suit that he was supposed to have but like he had the big chain and like you know it was very very bulky very very powerfully drawn but even that like it kind of fits the motif at least but like fate went from mysticism magic flowing robes to just like street punk eye tattoo like <laughs> Yeah, I was able to pick up like the first 15 issues of Fate in a comic book store a year or so ago. And so I covered it in a mini episode I'm sure you're going to get to. That was the, the, like you're saying, just how can you change a character that much? They knew he is so wimpy as his normal self. We have to make him look as tough as possible. And yeah, it was just, it was two of the moment. That is for sure. Even in the moment, we knew it was two of the moment. (laughs) And everybody's just like, no no way, no way. Well, why don't you take us into our second cover? story here so the second cover story of this issue magic act is an interview with mark silvestri and david wool of top cow about why they made the transition from marvel style superhero books such as cyber force to mystical action adventure like witchblade and the darkness as silvestri explains as we went to conventions we noticed that the audience was shifting its average age we were aware that there were fewer and fewer kids at our shows our audience was getting older we realized that this audience was very loyal and had stuck with us through all the crappy years in comics (laughs) (laughs) ironic this is who we needed a service rather than create and publish comic titles for younger readers who just weren't there in any great numbers uh it's revealed that the witchblade idea was loosely based on concepts popularized michael moorcock and his classic elric series of books but also because of superhero fatigue as wole explains when we came up with the concept of witchblade we were sick of the whole idea of the hero or group fighting to protect the larger group mutants humans whatever we wanted to see how these powers affected one person showing their desire to continually evolve wole elaborates You're deluding yourself if you think the next hit book will be a reworked version of the last hit book. We always wanted to be ahead of the curve, and we know now that you need other people's input to do that. I think he's right. I think they made the right choice because I always thought the superheroes, quote unquote, of Top Cow were never that. Like they, they were mercenaries, right? Cyber force. Like I got, I got the, you know, Kickstarter edition. It's a good book. It's an interesting book, but it, it's like 
superheroes but militarized like you said right with jim lee stuff yeah a lot of the early image stuff was superheroes militarized in whatever fashion right they were mercenaries like cyber force or codename strike force which i think was some to, to a degree like subservient to some sort of government entity like it was all some kind of group or organization. I mean, Wetworks was the same way. They were a government ops team, you know? It was some, they were somehow tied to some sort of ruling body. There was a lack of altruism. So if you're not going to really do altruistic superheroes, why even do something that resembles that? So it makes perfect sense for them to make this shift. And I mean, I think especially with the Michael Turner of it all, uh, why not? Why wouldn't you? Because, you know, you're Mark Silvestri. You have been creating some of the best images on paper for the last 20 years. And then somebody comes in that very similar style, but just a little bit better. Why wouldn't you hire him? <laughs> well, and I, I'm fascinated just both in that last George Perez quote and in these quotes here from Mark Silvestri, David Walt, like the wisdom, like, like the business savvy that these guys had to look forward, to analyze, to think about it. You know, they're saying, no, this is why this didn't work. This wasn't going to work forever. We knew we had to change. Like, I j you just got to applaud them for really thinking about it and not just saying, oh, well, we got a good thing going. Let's keep it going and run it into the ground, which is what Marvel and DC generally did. And then they would kind of reset and go back to their standard, but then they would find the new trend and follow that for a while and run it into the ground. So uh, it's fascinating. But I I'm curious because really from Witchblade and the darkness and all that, the shift in comics over the next five, six years from superheroes to fantasy adventure, I think it kind of culminates with cross-gen. We're just like, everything was like a, a fantasy adventure series. Like, did you like that? Did you ever get into that style of, of storytelling? Absolutely. Absolutely. I actually, obviously for, uh, you know, mid-teen boy reasons, I loved Witchblade. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, once I saw Michael Turner's art, I think is going to go unchallenged as one of the greatest. Like, he's going to be top 10 of all time for a very long time. It's gonna be very hard for me to knock him off a top 10 list, but like just the concept, like, you know, like uh, the quote there said, this one person dealing with this immense responsibility, this immense power and people coveting it very strongly. Like, you know, I learned about Nottingham again through Wizard before I ever read a single page of, of Witchblade. And I was like, I fucking hate that guy, right? I, I hated Nottingham <laughs> before I ever touched an issue of freaking Witchblade. Like, it's a very interesting space. And especially because you do have these established superhero brands, why wouldn't you go more into something else, right? Just differentiate yourself. And I think that was a big factor that made CrossGen so interesting and made CrossGen so successful at its beginning. I wish it had finished. One of my like side quest goals in life is to get wealthy enough to be able to pay all the original teams to finish their books. Oh. Just for me. I don't even need to put them out. I, unless Marvel <laughs> wants to do it. Because I've been thinking. I'm, that's I, I put that in the universal consciousness about 10 years ago. So like I, I'm hoping they finish them. But it's like. I actually really like that. I read. Uh, I started with uh, Sigil. Because that is uh, more in sci-fi. More in my kind of. My primary favorite stuff is sci-fi. But I've read Mystic. I've read uh, Meridian. Meridian so interesting. Uh, Scion is a very interesting like mix of both. And they they really did a great job. And I think uh, the whole premise of we're doing these books, but we're building this bigger universe first before like, you know, the stuff that 
DC ended up doing with the crossover universes and the crises and all these things. They did that by accident, right? They didn't start, you know, super action comics. Number one did not start with, all right, so in 17 years, we're going to bring in another universe and all this stuff. Right. So that's why I like experiments like cross gen, because they were like, Hey, we're going to have these multiple worlds. They're going to cross over at some point, but before then we're going to build up these stories and build up these characters. And they're all kind of going to have their own little twist on this single concept. And I love that the architecture of it before that they even put a single, you know, pen to paper. Yeah. And I mean, that's been, you know, done before, like, you know, during the explosion in the early nineties, like with dark horse during comics, greatest world. I just learned about that recently too. That's one of those things. I'm like, I got to put that on my list. Is it collected? (laughs) How can I get it? (laughs) Hey geeks, it's time to take a break to tell you about our sponsor for this episode, Manscaped. If you haven't heard already, it's Smooth Sack Summer. When you're playing in the summer sun, make sure you're Manscaped from pubes to bum. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) This is the summer to keep your balls cool while still looking hot with Manscaped. The leaders in Below the Waist Grooming are making sure we all have a ball this summer by giving our pants partners everything they need to stay fresh, dive headfirst into smooth sack summer by going to manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping with the code wizard 20 which my cousin just told me he ordered as well. Oh yeah, I mean, this is the season, man, like they're saying. And you know who's the king of summertime manscaping, Michael? It's Namor, (laughs) the Submariner. His Atlantean speedo leaves very little to the imagination and dude always looks smooth when he's battling the villains of the deep blue sea imperious rex namor obviously hooked himself up with manscaped performance package 4.0 and it's time you do the same it has everything you need to prepare that summer bod manscaped has built the ultimate grooming bundle for your summer grooming their Manscaped Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to its advanced skin safe technology. The Lawnmower 4.0 has a 7,000 RPM motor, a new multifunction on off switch to engage travel lock. That's kind of cool. And gives you the ability to turn the 4,000 Kelvin LED spotlight on and off when needed for more precise shaves. I'll just tell you, Michael, like I busted out my equipment for the summertime. You know, it's getting hotter. I got to have less hair on the body, you know, just trying to keep it uh, nice and cool around these parts. I'm excited. Both of those pieces of equipment are just so easy to use. That's the best part. I don't have to like prep anything. I'm just like, nope, it's ready to go. It's a smooth experience all the way around. I got to say also, the battery lasts a long time. Like if you charge this, it will last you several uses we need to recharge this, which I find very interesting. Did I mention this trimmer is waterproof too? Mm-hmm. Beach, lake, or shower, this razor will devour even the strongest pubes. <laughs> <laughs> And once you have the perfect haircut, you can use Manscaped's liquid formulations to keep that freshness, even at the hottest summer barbecues. Most importantly, use the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant to stay cool in the heat with a soothing aloe vera formula. It's the best in the business for below-the-waist freshness, and this clear-drying formula will keep looking good while smelling good. Manscaped even threw in two free gifts to their Performance Package 4.0. The Manscaped Boxers, which I wear quite often, they're very 
very comfortable. And the shed travel bag, wearing sandals with some nasty toenails during the summer months. Take a look at the Shears 2.0, a luxury nail grooming kit. This kit includes stainless steel nail cutters, tweezers, and grooming scissors. So with the Performance Package 4.0, your balls will be ready to impress, but make sure you cover the rest with the Shears 2.0. So how do you go from Imperious Rexy to Imperious Sexy? Go to Manscaped.com now. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code WIZARDS20 at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping with the code WIZARDS20 at Manscaped.com. It's Smooth Sack Summer, geeks. Get on board or get left behind. Getting back to Marvel, though, here, Title Wave is a piece covering all the relaunched Marvel books that were given a chance to fill the hole in the publishing schedule left by the Heroes Reborn event. So as Kurt Busiek explains in his last five issues, it's like all Busiek all the time, quote, there'd never been a superhero universe in that sort of situation. Marvel had this hole in their universe, but they didn't just want to go on like nothing had happened. They wanted to juice up the books that were there and see what they could do in terms of new books. As a result, the much-hyped Kazar by Mark Wade and Andy Kubert got the green light. Don't need to talk about that anymore. Everybody loves it. I don't. Fair enough. As you did, don't? It's more based in premise of Kazar, and then reading the first issue, second issue, I'm like, I don't need this bickering couple, and one wants to go to civilization, one wants to stay in the jungle. Oh, like, I'm just like, I don't it, like oh, it. No, that, that, clears, that clears up pretty fast. It's it's a good read. My only beef with that entire series is they didn't never they never collected the last, like, four issues. Because oh. somebody else took over and they had like four more issues by a completely different team that has never been collected. Now, I demand an omnibus, Marvel. <laughs> Now, the other thing, though, is also during that time is we got the surprise hit Thunderbolts, you know, from Kurt Busiek and Mark Bagley. So obviously we were talking about that earlier, but that was such a huge like, whoa, like didn't see the twist coming. So that was great. But also in the mix then were the likes of Stephen T. Siegel and former Wildstorm artist Scott Clark getting a chance to reassemble Alpha Flight, which the writer compares to James Robinson's Starman at DC he says, quote, it stars a new character, but I don't think it would have done as well if it didn't have a link to that legacy i think the same is true at marvel so he's saying like you if you want to bring in a bunch of new characters you can but use the legacy title as the the means to do that uh, and i don't know if you've read much of that alpha flight i was reading a few issues this week because that's another one on social media people say it's oh you know it's a lost gem nobody talks about that alpha flight run i have read scattered issues so i didn't have like a huge history where i was like okay there's puck you know here's vindicator you know all of that and then the new characters coming in so i saw everything they were setting up and i saw like okay this is gonna pay off later that they're you know they're doing this they're doing that so it's very well organized but i just never felt connected to the characters very much in that one i fully agree i found out about that run again through wizard but i was reading uncanny at the time and they had a two-point perspective crossover issue i think nine of alpha flight uh is like the same events from their perspective that oh. happen in uncanny 365 i might be right on that uh, <laughs> uh but it's like the same event and it's like it says you know you, you want to see like alpha flight's perspective go read alpha flight you know nine or whatever and that's how i kind of realized this actually matters like this is something that oh these characters are going to show up other places like i should i should get a hold of this and when i did eventually read it it's an okay book. Like, I'll be honest with you. I'm a really big fan of the X-Men brand and all really everything associated. So like, I was ready to just like give really anything to 
Alpha Flight. Like they could, it could be a half decent book. I'll be like, cool, awesome. And it's fine. It's a fine book. It's readable. It gets a little weird at the end. There's some clone stuff or Uh time travel stuff. It gets really (laughs) weird at the end. Like the way they close out the book is very like, it feels like it wasn't going to, that wasn't the plan originally. (laughs) Okay. Um, but it's 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 definitely readable. My biggest thing for this run, at least the initial run with uh, Scott Clark's art, is th- that initial like promo image where they had the big one carved out, and it was the whole team standing there, and they, they had it in every single comic book at the time. So I saw that image all the time. <laughs> I drew that Vindicator so many times, <laughs> so many times. I love that Vindicator pose. Like it was so clean. It was just stand, like a, a simple pose, but it was so well done. Uh, and just the idea of of this, you know, formerly like love interest side character Heather being Vindicator now. It really, I, I just love when you progress characters. Yeah. And I think this was my first like exposure to that besides like Spider-Man being married to Mary Jane. Cause you know, I'd watched the show and then when I picked up the comics, they were married and about to have a kid. And I was like, oh, this is perfect. Like things are progressing and moving forward. Yeah. Well, that to me is like progressing characters and moving them forward was the best thing you could do to any character. So seeing her like take a leadership role and have a, have her own suit, have her own abilities. I was like, oh, that's really cool. Cause you know, I'd seen her before and I had, I had read about her and it's like, oh, she was, the, you know, guardian's girlfriend. And she was kind of a love interest for Logan at one point and all these things and like, but like, I don't care about those characters personally. When somebody is, is described as just the romantic interest, I don't care. But like seeing characters that, become more developed and well fleshed out like lois lane i think is one of the most underutilized and best characters in comics because lois lane has been built over years to be able to hold a whole story she is a well-rounded character so you you could do a whole issue of a superman book that's just lois and no one's gonna bat an eyelash yeah because you're interested. She's already been built up and she knows who she is. And as a character, like most people get her pretty right. So I'm always down to read a story where it's Lois, like digging up the dirt on somebody or Lex or whoever. That's an interesting story to me. Cause I'm, I care because it's been developed, but it's like what it's just like the girlfriend or the boyfriend. I don't care. Well, it, it is interesting. Yeah. With Lois, you always know, eventually she's going to throw a punch. Cause she could also do that. But yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but, um, the other book that was kind of the surprise for a lot of people was Heroes for Hire, that they were bringing back book. Power Man and Iron Fist's group. Or, and John Ostrander was writing it at the time, and he actually speaks to the quality of this era of Marvel when he declares, quote, I think at one point the fans felt Marvel was putting out books just to put books out. I think now they're seeing there's a little more care in terms of making sure it's a quality product. Now, that book I was reading too, and I find really interesting because it was used basically as like a lot point like hercules is like part of their group at the first issue but he's like a drunk now they're like oh so like by the second issue he's gone and then the black knight comes in and now the black knight is getting like a new sword he's getting this new like transformation ability and so like they can just keep bringing it's like if you want to know what was happening with this character you have to read heroes for hire now because there's they're just cycling in and out and so i thought that was a really fun concept for the book because it's kind of like the defenders too where the defenders just seem to be like a rotating roster you know there's not like a core team so anyway, I, I thought Heroes for Hire was one of the concepts I felt had the most legs, whether it was 100% cool. Like, I didn't think they had this villain that they were building up, like the master or something they were calling him. Ah. Oh, the master of the world. That yeah. kid was so weird. <laughs> uh, 
that character shows up every once in a while and he's always so weird i really like that book i really like that series the premise that hulk non-bruce banner hulk uh because they were separated at the time would be on a separate team like would be on a team at all was just shocking to me that i was like i'm super interested in this book just to see what that's about but this book is how i first read about i always forget his dang name uh the original human torch like he was there oh yeah like he was there right jim hammond yes so he was their man of the chair like he was the one giving out the orders and i was like that's super interesting again through wizard and online at that point i had read about various backstory tales of like oh the the original human torch and i was like oh i didn't know there was another one like i knew nothing about it so for him to just appear and i was like who's jim hammond i was like looking it all up and i was like oh this is super interesting like very cool to like have this long-standing character kind of be involved still and i i I like that like seeing old legacy characters that just kind of show up and are part of the world and they don't have to be the hero they don't have to be the title guy you know that's why i am i personally am team make peter parker married again you know (laughs) i want peter parker to move forward and and you know get into a healthy relationship and move forward have a kid and whatever he can move and be the mentor like he can be the jay garrick of the spider-man you know mythos and we can have miles as the amazing spider-man and yeah. you know we, we, that would be fantastic to me because that makes sense to me because then we're moving forward we're not just constantly resetting it yeah. it's like oh what what are we like as our status quo like what is editorial like as our status quo let's reset to that like i hate that that is one of the biggest tropes that i wish if i could press erase like press a button to erase a single trope in comics it's the the, the eventual return to the status quo i would get rid of it immediately yeah now of course the most enduring legacy of this Marvel class of 97 is the Joe Kelly Ed McGinnis Deadpool you know ongoing series it inspired the universe of the live action movies I mean this is much as Rob Liefeld wants to fight against it I created Deadpool he was always a smart aleck it's like not like this like you didn't create a world for Deadpool so it's it's, it's amazing what they accomplished here but uh, it is mentioned that they were getting more of a chance more people were reading them because so many of the top tier characters were tied up in the heroes report event and now with the heroes return initiative their day in the sun might be coming to an end so each editor and writer kind of has a differing opinion on what the outcome will be but Stan right. T. Siegel offers the most interesting well thought out view I said he says quote the market will support as many good books as it can we like the stories that we're telling and hopefully other people do too when they don't we'll stop but as long as they do we'll keep going which is the measure of any book ultimately no matter how much hype is behind it if it's good people People are going to buy it. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And that's why I think you could tell which books stayed around from that era, right? Mm-hmm. Deadpool stayed around. Thunderbolt stayed around. And the other ones disappeared after a while. They all ran for about a year or two. And that was it. Because they had, I think, a limited shelf life. Kazar, for instance, uh, while I think it was a good book, Kazar is a character that I think works in small doses. Because he's not... Conan. So he's never going to satisfy the Conan crowd. And that's really the only crowd that would read him on any long standing uh, run. So you're going to get an interesting short run of him. You know, recently he was in Agents of Wakanda. You know, you got a short run of him. He eventually showed up for the Avengers Forever, whatever it was called, this this massive event that was just done. Uh, He eventually showed up in that. 
like small doses, small doses, it works. Uh, having, as, as I mentioned to you earlier, I just read Bad Rock Wolverine. He shows up in that. He's part of that story. And it's like, oh, cool. Kazar's around. Zavu's still around. We know these people. Awesome. And then you don't have to anymore, right? You can you can be like, oh, if we ever go to the Savage Land, we know Kevin's there. We can get back to him. Because like, what else is he going to do? Because he makes his choice. And especially in this, uh, that's why the, and I think that's why the back end of this book has never been collected is because they finish and he's like, all right, we're going to go back home. We're going to go back to the Savage Land. And then this last, the last four issues is just him back in New York, like inexplicably. <laughs> uh, so just like, you know, f- finishing the Cubert run and it's like, oh, cool. We're going to go back home now. And then it's like, how was he on a subway? Why, why is the first page him on a subway? I don't understand what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's too bad, man. But like same thing here for hire feels like it should be the like mainstay book digitally. I think heroes for hire should be like a digital proving ground for new characters that's a great idea if i was running things at marvel i would have two ongoing books digitally that would never end and would always constantly feature new talent and new characters as much as possible what if and heroes for hire heroes for hire is characters that you like to be maybe in the main universe new pitches whatever and somebody says hey you know what i I got this idea for a new mutant all right cool let's throw him in heroes for hire he shows up for an issue or two see what happens same thing with what if Eh, I got this weird off off books idea. All right, let's run an issue of what if, see how it runs. And you, because especially now with the internet as it is, you'll get instant feedback, immediate feedback. You put out one issue of what if with like a weird, crazy story and people are like, holy crap, I want more of that. Like imagine, I mean, this is maybe, I'm, maybe I'm speaking from a minority perspective, but I feel like I'm not. What if 114, volume two, 114, the last issue of the main what if series was what if the superheroes never came back from Secret Wars? And it is a, here are their kids. It's very interesting dynamic dynamics and then they end by going back to earth with the sentinels running things and i finished that issue and i was like when's the next one coming i need more (laughs) of this story (laughs) it's like imagine if they did that digitally now and two thousand people on twitter were like we want to read this book like give me a mini series of this why wouldn't you green like that yeah well especially (laughs) in this era of the multiverse it's so easy just to bring them over into the main continuity and then everybody's happy with it so for sure now you know you said if you were running things well you are running things with your magazine giving those small press books the spotlight and uh hey that happens to be what our next piece is about here moving from the big three to the little guys next we get cool worlds which is a short article giving the spotlight to three small press independent comic books that wizard deems low profile but says the fans should be checking out the first is coventry by bill willingham uh, rest in peace who had previously done a send-up of superhero types in his book elementals but now is taking the same look at fantasy realms it's described as the story of an america where magic and sorcery never vanished and mythic heroes still walk the streets the title is also rife with government agencies regulating everything from magical practices to werewolves i love that idea i love that idea i don't love the art on it Ah. (laughs) i don't love the art in the piece but i do love that idea i conceptually and that's where i really like have my biggest free pass if the story's good there is very little that art can do to not make me read it Hmm. like the art could be bad it could be outright bad and i'll be like this is a really interesting story hearing this premise though it makes me think of shrek 
<laughs> like I don't know. It sounds like the Shrek universe to me. It doesn't not sound like the Shrek universe. Like that line. <laughs> also being given the spotlight is the copybook tales by writer Jay Torres and artist Tim Levins. As described in the article, the book focuses on the life and times of 20-something Jamie Cruz, who's graduated college and dreams of becoming a comic book writer. But the series also flashes back to Jamie's high school misadventures. The linchpin of is Jamie's copybook, a journal he kept in his youth, which he mines for storylines as an adult. That's a really interesting story. That's I feel like a lot of people could relate to that, especially people in the industry or like industry adjacent. I know that that's the thing, though. I went on a rant. I actually had to cut down my rant on a mini episode because (laughs) box office poison. Everybody said they love this book. So I read it and I was just like, I so don't care about the aspiring comic book writer. Like that just seems like it's, Mm. it's done so much like, oh, this character that I'm writing about is me because I wanted to be a comic book writer and now I'm making a comic book about me. And I don't know, to me, that's like the snake eating its own tail and it, it gets frustrating to me. Like I, I, again, like it also, just this style of comic book in general, which I assume there's plenty of indie books that follow this pattern, which is, you know, real world storytelling. And I, I don't subscribe to that for my graphic storytelling. It's not what I am buying for. So this one, like totally, I'm just like 100% shut off. He wants to be a comic book artist. Bah. I wouldn't even give it a look. I fully agree with you there. I think the semi-autobiographical take on this is always not perfect. It's always not great. Like sometimes you might you might get a decent one. It might be interesting. Like there might have been a you know fun misadventure where it's like, oh, like I went through some weird stuff in school. But like most people, especially most people that end up being comic book artists, most people aren't Jack Kirby. Most people do not have the real interesting history like Jack Kirby did. But like, for example, like a book like American Splendor, you know, this is like a darling. And I'm just like, I love the movie was fun. You know, he's, he's a curmudgeonly guy. So I guess he's an interesting character in life. But at the same time, it's just like, it's about him going to the doctor. I could just talk to anybody and get that story. Yeah. Why do I want to read it and pay for the, it? You the know? movie, the, I think the way the movie was presented was like the really interesting part of it. Yeah. Uh, I've tried reading the comic and I just, I can't get into it. Like I, I, I rented it from the library at one point and I was like, really it's not really singing to me whereas like you take something like mouse which is very real very true stories very impactful and i have having just read it for the first time ever this past year weirdly still relevant today and it really sad and depressing as to how relevant it is yeah yeah, i've got my copy on the shelf over here yeah when it's something like that, like, you know, there, there's a book behind me, uh, like I said earlier, I'm from Bosnia. So like, there's a book behind me, uh, Facts from Sarajevo, which is by Joe Kubert. Uh, oh yeah. I remember that. We, we talked about that in Issue of Wizard. Yeah. It's a great book. It was a very hard book to read. There is another book that I did not realize how afraid of it I was until I saw it on the shelf at my used bookstore where I literally, I'm, you know, I'm going through just checking stuff and I see it and it's safe area. Garage and I saw it and I almost started like crying in the store. And I was like, oh, did not realize that was like that deep. Uh, <laughs> they just had to like collect myself for a minute. I did not expect it to be that. I still haven't touched it. Like I still am wow. not, you know, it's funny because like I go to therapy and everything, but it's like, I still am not, I do not feel mentally ready to like tackle that because that is such a specific story that I know anecdotally, I know a little bit about, and I am almost afraid to like 
learn the deeper truth. Yeah. But it's like that, you know, when it's when it's real stories like that about important events. I mean, like I've read a bunch of like the 9-11 stories and it's like personal takes from per- people who had loved ones or who were nearby and who saw it happen, you know, from close by. Those are interesting reads. But when it's just like regular person, regular Joe, regular Jill, just living their life, there's always something missing. I'm yeah. missing excitement. Because like, I know that my day for the most part, not interesting, not exciting. When I write, I write about secret agencies, wolf <laughs> bonding programs. Like it's a whole thing. Yeah, it, It's not regular average day life. And that's- Yeah, like me, I always like, feel like you can mix your experiences into the characters you're writing, but put them in something unique and exciting to happen. And then, yeah, you could base it on somebody you know. But let, yeah. you know, let's not do that. So, but this last one here, tell, tell them about this one, because this one is the one that, that caught my attention. Finally, Lost Stories by John Riley Garrett Burner is a bi-monthly book about, quote, the world of all lost things. And a boy named I Am, who deals with malicious gnomes from the world that appeared via tiny black holes and snatched away his homework, lunches, and other vital items. And ultimately, I am himself. The boy then becomes embroiled in the politics between the kingdoms of this world while discovering other people and items brought through the black holes into the world. Wow. Is that wild? That, that feels like somebody's idea for a story from when they were a kid and they just like maxed it out. They they, they were like, oh, this idea, but I'm just going to turn it up to 11. <laughs> well, what's crazy is what it made me think of is there was this episode of Muppet Babies from back in the day. <laughs> And they find out that there's these these little gnomes that are stealing your socks. And so they go into the closet and they're able to travel down into their world and they got piles of socks everywhere. So the, all your lost socks, they took them, you know, like, so it's that kind of explanation. Like, I just feel like there's so many story possibilities with that because it's like, it's lost people, it's lost items, it's historical artifacts, it's whatever. And then for that to show up in this world, like you could just go so many different directions. So I, I think I'm going to hunt down lost stories. That one sounds really cool. Absolutely. That does sound interesting. So I wanted to tack on to this segment. So this era of Wizard was very special to me personally, because there was always these ads that would run for like the small press, really, really indie comics. And I was always fascinated because even back then, a lot of it, like as a kid, I'm like, this art looks like dog duty. Yeah. Why, why are you like, how much money are you spending to run this ad for this comic book? That looks terrible. How could you? And so right after the letters here, or in the middle of the letters, there is an ad for a, it's hard to read because it's like, it's an acronym, but it's also not an acronym. It's weird. It's S period, M period, A period, S period heroes. So it's smash heroes, but there's an extra H missing there. So it's technically smash heroes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, from zen comics publishing and when i first saw this i was like what a ridiculous bunch like they're ultra patriotic armors with some like crazy alien type villains but i mean like this is a full page ad in a wizard in a magazine that was selling there was doing they were doing numbers you know they were this was a wide reach magazine so i can't even imagine how much an ad like this cost back then but they had the money and i 
I, I saw Zen comics and I was like, it can't possibly be the same people as Zen, the intergalactic ninja. Right. But they were, in fact, the same same group. This series is billed as a three-issue miniseries. I did some research and I, I am saddened to report it did not reach issue three. Uh, it did reach two issues, but it never did get to three. Uh, but this made me end up d- diving a little bit into the Zen stuff. And I uh, I remember seeing the, the cover to, was it Zen? Just this, like a half of his face and there was like a bunch of stuff happening behind him it was a one shot and it was a full color book that's the one thing i remember because that was like the big part of the advertisement always for it was that it was a full color but i didn't know at the time that almost all books from zen were black and white i uh let's say acquired that book uh, (laughs) since we started talking about this and the first page involves things that i would not like to repeat Uh, and i was just like oh i didn't know this is what zen was about uh that's enough of that (laughs) well that's how i felt like one of the comics that was always advertised in every issue of wizard is razor razor this razor that it gets half pages it's quarter pages full pages yeah there's one in here uh for trading cards for razor and so i finally like found an issue and i'm flipping through i'm like oh no like this is i see why this was like direct mail order like you know it's gonna come uh, in a black poly bag so mom doesn't know what you ordered because i was like oh okay so yeah it's interesting how that worked there's even one in this issue like a very small black and white ad for like very sexy comics like that's what they called it essentially and you're just like oh, oh man. man the other one that i took notice of because it's it's like a you know banner ad on the side here in the news section it is for the gothic scrolls draven from dav des publishing it says 32 pages full color monthly in november i did some research and i am disappointed to say that it did not do any more than two months uh, uh, however in researching that i found something that i didn't know existed and i feel like most people don't know oh. exists there is a series called lost heroes from davdes publishing that is in some fashion presented by or written by or involving because his likeness is very much on them mark hamill Wow. Because <laughs> I acquired uh, one of these issues and the back, the back three pages are ads for whole litany of books they were supposedly publishing. And one of them was Lost Heroes and it said with Mark Hamill. And I was like, not Mark Hamill, Mark Hamill. It can't be. And I looked it up and yeah, there are uh, there are five issues, zero and one through four. Uh, it's it's on eBay. You can see the whole hmm. run. Lost Heroes and some, some sexy models and some dragons and aliens and all sorts of things. <laughs> Mark Hamill's face is on, uh, I think, every single one except one. Uh, And it's crazy. Like, I knew that a bunch of stars were getting into comic books in this era. Uh, I know that uh, Shatner, you know, had a couple things going on. Yeah. Uh, And then you had um, Leonard Leonard Nimoy's, yeah, Primordials. Yeah. 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 In uh, what was that? Was it Techno? Techno. Yeah. Techno comics. And so, like, I knew that was happening. But when I saw that, I was just blown away. I was like, Mark Hamill? One of the one of the like most interesting story about Mark Hamill to me is that there was a period of time where he did not want to be associated with Star Wars. He did not want to be Luke Skywalker, right? He was like, I I, I do other things. I want to be an actor. And uh, forget who told it was, it was another actor who was like a big character actor that basically said, uh, if you want to make money 
you are Luke Skywalker. <laughs> like, that's what you got to be. And he just kind of owned it. You know, it's a similar kind of story, like with Leonard Nimoy. Like, he, at first, Leonard Nimoy yeah. had nothing to do with I'm not Spock. To... Then yeah. I am Spock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it, it was just very interesting. So I was like, for him to be at one point, I don't want to be Luke Skywalker, to be like producing comic books and putting his name and, yeah. and face on them. Well, he had, he had another wow. one called The Black Pearl. That was his big project, like oh, in this era. Yeah. So you should try looking that up. It's, it's a pretty cool premise, actually. But as we close out this segment, Dream Teams 2 is a follow-up to a previous article from issue 61, uh, where the wizard staff made their pitches for what creative teams they wanted to see on various Marvel books. Uh, so this time around, they're making suggestions for creators they want to see take the reins at DC Comics. So there is a lot of these. We're just going to run through them real quick, writer, artist, until we have really strong opinions on a particular <laughs> this list. So um, the first one here is for action comics. They want Kurt Busiek, Jerry Ordway. Solid. All-time classic, yeah. Adventures of Superman, they're saying James Robinson and Gary Frank. It's just like Gary Frank was doing an okay Supergirl. I, I didn't realize Gary Frank, like it never connected in my brain until I read this, that this was Gary Frank, like who would become Gary Frank, like Gary freaking Frank. Uh, like I took notes and I was like, Batman, Earth One, Gary Frank, Supreme Power, Gary Frank, like that. He was, he was already in the biz in 97. Like that's crazy, but like really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Him for sure. Yeah. Now, interesting, sometimes they, they did this on the last one, too. For Aquaman, they went J.M.D. Mateus, obviously wrote some of the darkest Spider-Man stories and everything else. But also, they just say, we'll just keep Jim Calafiore on there. He's already the artist. He's so yeah. good. Don't get rid of him. I was like, oh, he, okay. is, he is really good. He's a, he's a good dude, too. Like, I've talked to him at cons. Huh. Like, he's a pretty, generally pretty good dude. I was talking to him one day because I'm a big fan of Exiles. And I was just chatting him up. And I was like, I loved your work on Exile. And he's like, what well, did you know that I I created uh, TJ, uh, Talia Josephine, Nightcrawler's daughter from the alternate reality. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah. And the the Marvel, they, they called it Marvel Visions. And it was like a bunch of different creators yeah. making their own versions of characters and, and teams. He created this world where there was a, a Nightcrawler's daughter. And I was like, oh, that's crazy. And I ended up going to get a bunch of uh, issues for him to sign and all this stuff. And I, like I just like geeked out with him at that moment. I was like, "That's so freaking cool!" Like I didn't know that. Now getting into the Batman books, I thought this was interesting because this does essentially happen uh, on one side, which is Paul Dini. They're like, he's writing Batman the animated series. Let him write comics, and of course, yeah. he does that. Uh, you know, Eventually, he, yeah, yeah. It gets and, so did, and John Romita Jr. also ends up on a Batman book, which is disappointing. <laughs> Hey there, geeks. Adam coming at you with just a little bit of context here. As we were getting ready to post this episode, that very morning we got the sad news that John Romita Sr. had passed away. And as you're hearing here and have heard on the podcast, we might be a little critical of John Romita Jr. and his artistic choices and his work, but certainly our condolences go out to the Romita family and uh, John Romita Sr., a true legend, somebody who just to find the look of Spider-Man and so many other Marvel characters over the years. Just wanted to clear that up. And now let's get back to the episode. <laughs> I, think, I think John Romita Jr. is all-time overrated. 
Um, yeah, that's where I'm at too, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 people have been hearing that a lot lately because he's been coming up in the issues, but but it's particularly on Batman. Like my co-host Michael loves Batman and he's just like, oh, like he did some Batman work and it is no good, no good. But the one person who had done some Batman work previously, at least in a crossover with his own character, was Matt Wagner. So for Batman Shadow of the Bat, they say get Matt Wagner to write it, get Steven T. Siegel teaming up with him to write and they get Lionel Francis U which I was like, ooh, that would be an interesting group right there. You of this era, absolutely. You of this era, I think him on Wolverine, some of the best Wolverine. Him and Adam Kubert probably take the top for that entire run of Wolverine. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think he'd make a really, really interesting Batman artist. Now this one though is the one when I just reading through the list quickly at the beginning caught my attention. Terry Moore and Michael Turner teamed up on Catwoman. I was like, whoa. I... So I didn't read that until just now. Michael Turner on Catwoman and Terry Moore being Terry Moore, just writing scandalous women. Yeah, that would have probably overloaded a lot of teenagers. (laughs) If that had happened, see, I just uh, had my wife on the podcast a while back and I got a chance to try to introduce her to comics. Like, which of these would you read? And Strangers in Paradise was the one covered in the issue where she's like, I would read this. And so my favorite Terry Moore book is Echo. And so I said, what if we read Echo together? So she let me read the whole series to her, read it to her. She didn't want to read. She's like, I can't follow panels. It's too much but she loved the characters the same thing yeah (laughs) what is it so anyway i just think that yeah that would have been very accessible to a lot of people but now for detective comics this is kind of a no-brainer but at the same time i think you have to think about it because they want jeff loeb and tim sale because obviously long halloween was a huge hit yeah because then (laughs) to me it's because they had the time to craft it you put them on a monthly book i don't know if you're gonna have the same results you're expecting from the stuff when they're able to do you know with some time i think you make detective comics what batman urban legends was i think you make detective comics in like an anthology style where it's stories from gotham about the various detectives it could it could, it could be gotham detective like gotham pd detectives it could be tim drake it could be whoever jeff and tim do the main batman story where it's this long tale well like big narrative it doesn't have to tie into the other stuff but it could like touch like something that happens in the tim drake story is later reflected in the batman like you could do it in such a way that it could be so fantastic and then you know after a year or two you're like hey we're collecting right jeff and book uh, like by itself and people would lose their minds that book would sell out absolutely yeah that that's a great plan now for the flash i mean he's good on everything but ron mars they're saying bring ron mars in to write the flash and get carlos pacheco to draw it now this jumped out at me because i had never read the mark wade run until a couple months back i started reading through it and there were these two issues 93 and 94 that were fill-in issues where carlos pacheco was doing it then mike waringo was doing everything else everybody loves mike waringo i think he's very very fun, but I preferred the Pacheco issues. Pacheco like, is all time. Yeah. I've got Arrow, I've got Aerosmith right there on the second shelf. I've got the hardcover. I didn't realize like how much I liked him until he passed last year. And I was just like, I took it hard. Like I usually am not like I'm I'm not a big believer in like the parasocial relationship. Like, you know, I don't know this guy. I've never met him. I've never talked to him. You know, like I uh, you know, I've I've met Chris Claremont. I love, you know, the the contributions he's made to X-Men, but like, God forbid something happens to Chris Claremont, that's gonna suck. It's gonna suck for the industry. I do not have like an emotional attachment for whatever reason. And you know, he he just did some of the best stuff and some of my favorite books of like the 90s. He did some of the best X-Men stuff. He did the fantastic, the Fantastic Four redesign that we were 
were robbed of because of Heroes Reborn, by the way. I don't know if you remember that like promo poster he did of the Fantastic Four family. And it's like Reed holding Franklin out on his hand. It's this like single piece that was shown in a bunch of stuff, but it was like the last two issues of that run. He drew them and it, they were perfect. And he he did that whole run when they came back after Davis. Like, dude, he he was all time and him on Flash with that family dynamic. I think that would have been the next great arc that people would be talking about to this day. Yeah, it definitely seems like it would make sense. Now, this next one too would be very fun. Green Lantern, they want John Arcudi. Uh, I've never <laughs> seen that name before. Oh, really? So he wrote, <laughs> he's he's the guy who created the mask. So he's like, that's oh, okay. his name. Yeah, and, but also like he was writing Major Bummer at this time and they referenced that here. Oh, I, I just, remember that book. Yeah, I, I just read that. it for the first time. That's a great book. And then they're saying have Joe Mad draw it. Joe Mad, just his Joe creativity, Mad. like with what he would do with the ring, that would be so much fun. It could be interesting. Joe Mad, I think, would be wasted on that, though, because I think most people that write uh, Green Lantern write Green Lantern very conservatively. They do not let the artists do a lot of fun stuff. I think if if you had someone that did a Green Lantern book, and I would say almost more so Kyle or John, Hal is kind of boring. I'll be honest with you. Like top to bottom, Hal as a character is kind of boring. But Kyle or John or Jessica, if they did it like classic Marvel style, where it's like, here is the pitch, artist does the layout, then you put Joe Matt on that. Joe would hate it because I'm pretty sure he would not would do well certainly not monthly <laughs> yeah uh, but like but like then he could have fun then any artist could have a really good well, time with what they do but like I think a lot of times they just don't I, I think this would be a good team because Arcudi if you look at his work especially with the mask he just lets the artist run I mean like it's it's just it's a okay. crazy crazy stuff so I feel like he would give him all the room he needed he's just like here's what we're doing here's some fun dialogue now roll you know let, let's just see how it comes out but kind of the same on this next one is impulse they want Joe Kelly and Mike Waringo, which just that just makes sense too. Like it's just like has snappy yeah. dialogue from a little a teenager, and then just like cartoony art, which is basically yeah, what you got anyway. Humberto Ramos on Impulse, like almost a similar yeah, Ringo, style. Wasn't Ringo was on Impulse for a while? I, I have to believe he did that. I think he started. Oh, did he start? I think okay, he started, and then Ramos came in after. If I recall, oh, right. that would make sense. Around, but I feel like Ringo started, and then he he must have uh, jumped to Spider Man. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but Joe, Joe Kelly. I mean, Joe Kelly is all time. I mean, uh, that you know when, when you were bringing up Deadpool my brain was like just go 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 at Rob Liefeld go at him right now <laughs> because that, that's been my personality for 27 years you know like ever since I started honestly there was a period of time and uh, I don't know if you had a plan to, to get to the, the the wizard top 10 artists and writers but I like counted the issues until he was no longer on the top 10 I despise Rob Liefeld's art I have despised Rob Liefeld's art for the better part of 30 years <laughs> like when uh, every time he's like oh I, I created Deadpool no Joe Kelly made Deadpool the character that people love today Cable Fabian made Cable who people love today like the stuff he contributed was like the bones everybody else put the meat and the muscle on it and the, and the skin like everybody else made them who they are it's interesting here. You can kind of maybe in a lot of ways say that about this because for JLA, they just want Grant Morrison to stay on because they say literally, quote, no one, and we mean no one, writes the JLA as well as Morrison. So it's just like all those years of history of the characters and a team and yeah, it's like, and then he writes it. And it's just like definitive. I mean, at the time, and honestly, yeah. since it, 
kind of is. And I think that this is something I was going to touch on, but we kind of moved past it. But earlier there was uh, in the in the news section, there was uh, there was talk about Super Team of the Gods with uh, January's JLA number 16. DC Comics will unveil the final 12 person roster of this premier super team. The basic structure is to map the 12 Greek gods of the hero on the heroes of the DC universe. And it's kind of a comparison of which gods and which which heroes. Right. And this was the era that began. And this is very much because of Morrison's influence, because uh, I don't know if you've ever read their book, Gods and Superheroes or something like that. Superheroes and gods, super gods. I think it's actually just called super gods. Great read great read and it's this whole analysis of uh like divinity as portrayed through uh comic books and and superheroes it's a very very great read but this was the era when superhero dc superheroes were starting to be referred to as godlike right and that's that that was the commentary that became the commentaries they were these powerful deities and marvel heroes were the regular everyday people that got powers that was the thing that like since then has been differentiated uh but yeah, yeah. no i mean i think i think grant morrison like defined the structure of a justice league book with jla number one so is there a writer who's associated with the you know the justice league of america prior to that where you say oh they had a great run gardner fox i guess is like you have to go back that far before there's somebody who wrote enough stories who was involved long enough with that team where you're just like yes they are the person you know yeah yeah, like post-crisis there's nothing i mean like there was a justice league book but like no one cares about it it is yeah. now the running joke of the dc universe it's the it's the international league and it's the you know i can't believe it's not the justice league right? <laughs> those are all real titles right and it, it, it yeah no grant morrison did an a- absolute yeah job. the next one here got me excited too because for legion of superheroes they want uh gerard jones and len straszewski to write it writers okay either way but it's the artist for me on this one jose ladrone because they specifically reference his story he did for the spider boy team up amalgam book which is one which of is my absolute favorites book. yeah so so good and so my co-host loves legion and legionnaires and he was reading all those books he has all the trades and stuff and so i delved into it I was like, it's pretty good. But if he was doing the art, but he's more like European mixed with Jack Kirby. Got his. I, I was gonna going to say, like, he, yeah. he he is, I think, the closest we have in the modern era to a Jack Kirby, like his style. If you look at his Inhumans book, the like intricacy of the world that he builds around them, it's straight from Kirby. I mean, it's he's channeling Kirby through that whole run. Yeah, no, that would have been a great, especially because Legion takes place in a future time. You could create such interesting, like, scenes and landscapes that you just can't do in like modern quote unquote metropolis or whatever next one here for nightwing chuck dixon because always chuck dixon but artist uh, Brett Booth. No, no never chuck dixon. never, never chuck, chuck dixon, dixon. Oh. uh here's here's my problem here's my problem <laughs> i have come to discover thanks to social media and people just being really proud of things they shouldn't be that a lot of people who i used to like are really kind of crappy people oh well um, I, I usually so speak it's, for it's, the work but yeah Oh, no, no. I, I, yeah. I agree with you. I agree with you. I mean, there's a lot of stuff where I, I'm reading it and I look at it. I'm like, man, this is one of my favorite books. And I flip it over. And I'm like, Chuck Dixon, no. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I you know, in, in the modern day, I would never. But yeah. Brett Booth, absolutely. At Brett Booth's style, I think, would lend itself so perfectly to Nightwing. Yeah. The, like live, long, like body type in general for an acrobat. I mean, that's just handwritten for him. Uh, I think he, he perfected that style when he was working on Backlash and he was just 
execute that to the top degree. Like, I think if you put Brett Booth on Nightwing now, it would be just as good as it was then. Now, uh, next one here, Robin, they want Roger Stern, who's just a, a solid writer. Steve Scroach, it's just like, okay, that, that would probably be a five book. I don't know if that would have pulled me back into reading Robin. Robin was my huge thing. That's why I said Chuck Dixon. Like, I love the Robin miniseries. I love I, exactly. all the early right. stuff. And then- I love Tim Drake. Tim Drake yeah. is one of my favorites of exactly. all time, of all universes. Steve Scroach, man, like, he is such an interesting artist for me. I fell more in love with his art style because I found out that he did like a bunch of concept stuff for the Matrix. Oh. Uh, yeah, he did like a ton of like the sto- actual storyboards they use in the movie were done by C. Scrooge. He did that stuff. So for, for me, I was like, wow, like to have that like breadth of capability to be able to just do like standard panels on a comic book and to be able to be like this shot and is going to be like a 30 second long pause, slow mo, you know, to have that range of, of capability. I like really went back and looked at his stuff again because that's uh, when I found that out was right around when he was launching that Gambit title. Mm. And that's when I went back to look at his x-man stuff because i was like oh man like i I was kind of iffy on the early x-man stuff but then like i learned that and i was like i don't know this new gambit stuff looks pretty fire like let me let me look at this x-man stuff again so like i really kind of like reacquainted myself with his art and so sometimes that will happen like there are artists that i've definitely kind of been like meh first off and then you see later on kind of who they become which takes me perfectly to this next one if you don't mind go ahead Uh, for superboy they say keith giffen good writer yeah solid but roger cruz roger cruz at this time time i would not have put him on any book because roger cruz at this time was carbon copy joe mad and like carbon copy if you like offset when you were writing (laughs) so like it wasn't perfect like it pretty much got the information across but like in this era like from 95 into like 97 he was still just straight up taking joe mad panels and just replicating them which like look when you're starting you gotta do certain things but like he evolved so very rapidly because if you look at just uh what his art became going up to the story of the 12 in the x-men uh where he he had a couple he had like a three or four issue run of an uncanny and it is indiscernible from who he was in the earlier 90s which is crazy and then like nowadays he did the recent robin series and i didn't know it was him Like I caught a cover and it said Cruz and I was like, oh, who, who's this Cruz person? I was like, what? That's not the same guy. Like, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> His art has evolved so well, it, like so cleanly that it, it has its own identity now. Whereas like literally what he did X-Men Omega uh, for the Age of Apocalypse crossover. And I was like, this, you're telling me this isn't Joe Mad's work. Like, <laughs> like this isn't Joe Mad. After, that that like, might have been editorial, though. <laughs> saying, hey, ape Joe Mad. That's what the people want. That's uh, quite possible. <laughs> uh, next up here, they wanted to grab the writers of Legion of Superheroes and the artists uh, from Aquaman over here. So they get Tom Payer, Tom McGraw, Marty Eglin to do Supergirl. Okay. I personally, I really liked the Gary Frank Supergirl look. It's too bad when he left. My friend who's been on the podcast, William Bruce West, he says, Gary Frank draws too many teeth. I'm like, okay, <laughs> that's your issue. It, it, you know, yeah. everyone has like an interesting beef that they have with certain <laughs> yeah. artists. But if uh, this is a sample of, of Marty England, uh, not my favorite. Yeah, it's kind of weird. It's a little cartoony. <laughs> For Superman, just the Superman title, they want Mark Wade and Alan Davis, which would be a super team. I mean, that would just be, I think you it's, could it's argue. On Superman, that is an unfair combination. Uh, (laughs) I think that is a book that gets 30 to 43 reprints. 
Yeah. Like, oh, this is the sixth reprint. Yeah, we sold out before we opened the doors. Like <laughs> Superman Man of Steel, they're saying Steve Vance and Dan Jurgens is the artist. So you're just gonna have that classic 90s Superman that you love. Dan and, yeah. Dan Jurgens like defined DC in the 90s to me. Oh yeah. I talked about this for years that the art in DC specifically was so uniform that it felt very much to me like they were going about art for their books for the most part. Like you had a few standouts, but for the most part, it was this like corporate take on art. It was like, it was all very similar. Like when you picked up a DC book, it pretty much looked like a DC book. There really yeah. wasn't a wide gamut of, of styles. Uh, and then Ed McGinnis lands on Superman and just turns it upside down. And I was like, yeah, we needed this in DC. <laughs> Uh, for Teen Titans, I love this. Carl Kiesel writing, Tom Grummet is the artist. I just read, there was a World's Finest 3. It's like WF3, and it's the first team-up between Tim Drake and Superboy. And it is amazing. Like, it's a Tom Grummet, Carl Kiesel book. And it is, really? it's from 96. Yeah, and in there, like, they, they're talking like they'd never met before. And I was like, really? You guys had never met by 96? And they say, like, it's their first time interacting in any way. So you have to go check that out. They ran three full years because death of superman was 93 wasn't it yeah three whole years without the two like sidekicks meeting that's it, wild hard to believe i know when i read <laughs> it i was like this is it this is the starting point because then they're talking teen titans but ultimately we're getting young justice so if young justice had tom grummet art i would have been even more on board with it. i'm about to read it and review it for some mini episodes coming up you young know? justice yeah young justice i've never read it anyone Oh, outstanding yeah. run it's so ridiculously fun yeah. that when they brought it back uh after rebirth that run like you should read it right after okay because it's such a like a oh my god it's the same book <laughs> <laughs> i mean i love peter david so i have no doubt you know and then finally speaking of peter david for wonder woman they want peter david with jim ballant art wow Come on. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> even even in 1997, I would have rejected this if it came across my desk. Jim Ballant uh, is now like the stain on the history of Catwoman. Like, even as a teenager, I was like, why? Like, everything is so large and just out there. I'm like, how is this a like, how is this practical for a burglar? <laughs> I was just like, I don't understand. Like, why would you? Well, Catwoman actually gets a profile in this issue. So it's the, the you know, the Jim yeah, Ballant yeah. Catwoman. I have right behind me, I have two Jim Ballant wizard posters from the issues he did the covers for. So I love the definitive look, but you're right. It's not practical when my wife was covering the bad girls issue. She's like, why? Why would that be? You know, it's like everything you're saying. But yeah, and if you watch his Instagram now, you're just like, nothing has changed. It's only amplified all the art he oh, puts geez. up. But yeah, so th but this is a very interesting discussion. So really all of those teams would have been solid. Wizard had to have had some influence on what DC was thinking. But I just want to mention before we get out this section that I had a great excitement, something I didn't remember. There is an exclusive three-page Quantum and Woody story in this issue and, and like that just got me so excited I was like I didn't know they did that like I, I can't believe I missed it at the time because I was buying Quantum and Woody so I would have been you know would have been top of priority for me but uh, you it's know it's funny because I, I always say like you know I took the best of Wizard and I took the best of uh 
heavy metal to make Catalyst. But it's like, when I saw this, it, like, I hadn't seen this in you know, ages. When I was flipping through this, I was like, oh, they had a preview of a comic. I'm like, I just made Wizard again. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we, we had some uh, Heroes in Motion movie stuff, but there's really not a lot to report. So we're going to skip over that because I feel like there's excitement building. The hype is building. We're here with the indie hype man. So we're going to rev up Jim and Todd's hype machine. So there is a lot of Gen 13 news in this issue. I, I can't think of a book that was hyped more in Wizard that is so irrelevant now, as much as I loved it. But just, I, I can't believe every issue is Gen 13, Gen 13, Gen 13 for these last two, three years. Uh, like I said, I'm around episode 16 or so, and you had just talked about that Gen 13 came out with the two toys and did not ever come out with any of the males. The the two female characters were made and they never made any of the other characters. And then I saw that in this, they're, they're, they were talking about, oh, finally Gen 13 toys. And I was like, oh, that's the toys he's talking about. And then I realized, why is Backlash there? Because like, that's poor article setup. Because I'm like, oh, okay, when you read it, they, they do eventually talk about a, a backlash figure but i'm like did that ever come out do you know if that ever came out we had like a, a super wild storm fan so christopher if you're listening you got to find us on social media tell us if that backlash figures around because you know what they're talking about here is that wild storm is going to release exclusive figures of their characters as incentives to dealers to order a certain amount of their books right so they're saying oh we're gonna do a Fairchild figure a free fall figure danger girl then backlash like you said and and then they say, but Fairchild is the first of that. So with Jed 13, number 25, with John Arcudi actually writing. So it's this new creative team coming on. Buy as many as you can. And then we'll send you the Fairchild figure. And then Wizard has an exclusive Fairchild that they release, which I have. And then they just go wide and release the Fairchild figure, which I have on card back here that Michael gave to me for my birthday a couple of years back. So there's like, there's a lot of that. And then the ones I was talking about were dolls. They were like Mego gen 13 oh, figures really? yeah yeah so that's the one where they did do the whole team yeah so they really did try because here jim lee is saying eventually we're going to release it to retailers like toys r us but after the playstation video game comes out after the animated film comes out which never do and then also you've seen it right you've seen the pilot oh yes yeah i've seen that movie yeah it's, hmm. it's not great it's not the worst thing ever, but it's also not Certainly great. Certainly not yeah. the worst. Thing. There are uh, much worse things. Yeah. But also, like, just there's so much Gen 13 merch. There's embroidered Gen 13 beanies that are in three different <laughs> colors in the junk drawer section. It's just like everything. And not only that, Gen 13 is also scheduled for a second crossover with Marvel's Generation X. So weird. This time, the tale is set in a haunted castle with like a mad scientist written by James Robinson and penciled by Salvador LaRocca. Like, that's a weird pairing, but it's cool. <laughs> Salvador, to me, was like, at the time, when he, this was kind of his like early era he kind of modeled his style a lot after carlos pacheco right so like so like to me they were like the perfect pairing so when i saw he often filled in for carlos on x-men mm -hmm. so to me i was like this is seamless like it wasn't but in my head i was like this is seamless now the funny thing here 
the pranksters at Wizard, they report in the Wizard News section that they punked J. Scott Campbell by telling him that Lucasfilm had announced a lawsuit over the artist drawing R2-D2 into the background of a panel in issue 16 of Gen 13, okay? That's why. I saw that. I didn't read the article for some Uh reason, but I saw it, and I was like, oh, that's R2-D2 in the background. That's funny. I didn't know that. And then they get a reaction before they told him that it wasn't real, and he's quoted as saying, quote, oh, jeez. This is a losing battle. George Lucas is one guy I don't want to piss off. Who did you want to piss off, J. Scott Campbell? But the the next sentence, the next sentence is everything. This is like going up against Disney. (laughs) And eventually it would be. That ages so incredibly well that it's it's impossible to predict. <laughs> oh, it's wild. Now, you know, this is Jim and Todd type machine, but unfortunately, there's no Todd McFarlane news in this issue. There's nothing major, even in the toy section. There's not like a big McFarlane release. So uh, can I bring it back to the original name of this segment? Yes. Because there are several pieces on Rob Liefeld, <laughs> and I would so very much like to shit on Rob Liefeld. Very well. <laughs> we must allow um, it. Ed McGinnis jumps to fighting a American. And this was at this was Rob Liefeld bootlegging Captain America. I remember seeing this and I was like, I mean, it's just Captain America, right? Like this, no one's confused about this. And then I saw like the teenage sidekick. I'm like, this is just, this is reborn Captain America. It's, yeah. it's a girl sidekick. She's got goggles. This is the same book. <laughs> like, what are you doing, sir? And uh, one other thing I wanted to bring up since we're in the toy section, the ridiculous like rebooted shaft, the, the awesome gets shafted that has the uh, awesome toys profit action figure and then the shaft leader from young blood why is he so thick why is it hulk shaft like i never understood that even as a kid i was like like i've seen a lot of the covers for this comic book you don't look like this <laughs> yeah well i mean th- this was like from that brief young blood reboot that alan moore was writing this was kind of the look of shaft during that time and yeah it was very like was he that bulky? oh yeah he was he was big like and, and the uh, wow. mostly the armor but yeah but you're right you like he's got the biceps and everything here going the shoulders working for but what's funny about this is we had a uh, sean onion who was wizard toy columnist for a while and he actually had from the time that these were released the profit action figures these like special editions because oh, i don't wow. know if he was convinced to order a lot or somehow it was some sort of uh. deal but he's like i still have like 10 boxes of these things that never sold at my store yeah <laughs> He's like, I have so many of these. He sent them to us and we gave them away to our listeners to get a giveaway That's people wild. that wanted them. Because we're just like, it's it's crazy. I could call him up now and he would probably send me a box. I just be like, go ahead, Sean, why not? <laughs> That's absolutely wild. Getting down to our tally here. In this issue, Jim Lee mentioned a whopping 10 times, Todd McFarlane just two times, which brings our running total to Jim Lee, 455 mentions, Todd McFarlane, 429. Wow. <laughs> you know, so you know what's funny? I was thinking about this kind of all day today because I was listening to the back issues. And uh well, like I like that. I hadn't thought of calling him that, but that makes sense. And it's funny because Todd just kept doing his thing, right? Yeah. Bob had all these other things happening. He had six or seven massive crossovers. He launched like 14 books. I mean, heck, in this issue, they're talking about an entirely different company than when he first started. So, you know, in the in the short course of seven years this man's gone through three companies 
Like it, it's it's kind of wild. Like he kept branching out. There's Blood Pool and Blood Strike, and you know, there's so many different books just from Extreme and then Awesome that he just could never get a toehold, right? He could never get a, a foothold in the industry like Todd. Todd was just like, hey, I'm gonna do 300 issues of Spawn, and then he just sat down and started writing 300 issues of Spawn. Well, then like, he's like, he, meanwhile, he's like, I'll just put my comic on autopilot because I got this toy thing happening, right. which is exploding all the more even today it's insane right. how he had the longevity he's had yeah right to go back to what you said earlier like the business mindedness of it all right he looked at the the landscape of the toys and said wow what's what's missing here like excitement heavy detail why don't we make toys that focus on excitement and heavy detail and people will buy them? And guess what? People bought them in droves. People bought them to sell out proportions. I mean, like, it's like super interesting. Like the presentation was just as important as the actual figure itself. So like, but that's the thing. He focused on this stuff that was really missing from the toy aisle at the time, right? What was the standard? Pl like plastic on a card back with a toy inside. That's it, yeah. you know? And that's great, but it's like, he put a little bit better art on there. He did a little more, like he did not crank everything to 11 at the time. Could it have been even more detail? Sure, but the figures would have been 50 bucks. Yeah. But he kept it just affordable enough and profitable enough for it to really take off. And I think that's what I think, especially in the like indie comic space, a lot of people don't take into account, like what is missing? What can I bring in that isn't everywhere? You know, that's why when everyone is bringing up, oh, I'm making a superhero comic. Yay. <laughs> like I'm so excited for you to make yet another superhero comic. So that, you know, like we were talking about earlier, like there is an opportunity to take a, a different direction. You know, like I, I look at my guy Jeff. Uh, I forget his last name. I'm, I'm really bad with names. Uh, but the series called Magic Powder. You know, it's you just got to trade. And he's gotten really good campaigns out of it. But it's like fantasy. There's gnomes and stuff. Like it's completely different from a lot of the books that are on the market right now. And guess what? It's working. <laughs> Yeah, well, that that's wild. And, you know, the thing about Todd is I feel like he doesn't have much of a sense of humor, but Wizards sure did, or at least they thought they did. <laughs> so I think it's time that we close things out with some attempts at laughs, fingers crossed, with Turok's Top 10. So what we have here, this is the top 10 things the Celestials want to give thumbs down to other than Earth in Heroes Reborn The Return, which is a mouthful. Try to take that in. I'll just give you a second. Okay. Okay. That's, that's a lot. All right. So let's get into this here. I have not read this one ahead of time. I've been proofreading them previously, and I this one I didn't have a chance to. So let's see where this takes us. Number 10, the Spice Girls, except Scary Spice. Oneg the Prober likes her. Damage control. Damage control. Damage control. Damage control. Come on. No, no. Whoa. Oh man, I remember the jokes from Wizard, and it's it. They've always been cringy. Like <laughs> it's very much like we're doing this because it's cringy. Like we know it's not that. Yeah. All right. Give us the next one here. Number nine. Whoever started saying you're the bomb. Well, that <laughs> is racially insensitive. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Number eight. Wesley, which I think Absolutely is Wesley not. Crusher. 
Absolutely not. Wesley is all time. Wesley is all time. Don't do that. The person who was writing most of these top 10 lists was Doug Goldstein, and he's like the Star Trek guy. So he put a lot of Star Trek into these things. Mm. Number seven, the guy who invented circus peanuts. Number six, whoever gives away circus peanuts on Halloween. Bad people. Number five, whoever likes circus peanuts. <laughs> Come on, that's a good run. That's a good that's run. That's a good run. Number four, that weird operating channel you turn to late at night that shows doctors operating on eyes and stuff. This one is relevant to me. My wife, she's an optometrist, and it's not the operating on eyes. She has gotten obsessed with Dr. Pimple Popper, which is oh, the geez. grossest show I've ever seen in my life. And I'm walking in, I'm trying to get a snack, and she's watching. I'm like, dear turn this off please she's like it's fascinating and she no. she didn't want to be a dentist because she thought mouths were gross but and then she looks at this she's like no this is good i should have oh, been no. i should have been a dermatologist i'm like no that's wild number three and i'm gonna veto this before i even read it vetoing <laughs> the entire number three star trek voyager one of the main characters is the cook the cook and paramount wonders why trek fans are insulted first of all that line is hilarious because now the current era of trek fans are insulted by all the current trek shows they stand voyager up as one of the greats it, this is all relevant to like when things come out because as we remember you and i we were there when the prequels were hated yeah. unanimously across all corners of star wars fandom and now they're like the prequels are so good i grew up with them yeah it, it all depends it's all a matter of uh, perspective yeah number two to your point the fighting american you guys ain't fooling nobody <laughs> facts facts number one joel schumacher thanks for killing the franchise dillweed now look 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 batman Ooh. forever will forever and until the day i die unless something else comes along that changes my mind be my favorite Batman. wow i think his batman was terrible i think his bruce wayne was immaculate uh this like troubled genuinely tortured like dude who has nightmares i thought it was brilliant i hated batman being like it's the car right chicks dig the car that was stupid yeah. but like i the, the bringing in robin and making it relatively like still believable as to how you would have a robin in that scenario uh i mean i think that's why we know that uh, uh nolan said no robins in my universe because uh he didn't believe in that concept well you know my co-host michael completely on the opposite end hates batman forever but our friend steven sapellis former co-host of the podcast he lives for it like it was his movie like it was everything to him and so yeah the soundtrack is so incredible too this i mean like there there are problematic people on the soundtrack you know <laughs> retroactively yeah. but like uh it, it's it's also like there's so many good things about it but like i said it's especially for the time even as a kid when batman and robin came out i was like this is a joke right like i was like oh schwarzenegger is mr freeze i was like why like I'm not even that deep into like analyzing who could or couldn't do a role and what, you know, like the, what an actor's skill talent is. I just couldn't wrap my head around it. I was like, why? Well, this is the wrong, this is not what Mr. Freeze looks like in any universe. Man, thank you so much for being on this episode for, I don't want to say hounding us, but sharing your enthusiasm <laughs> on social media to say, please, I want to talk. I want to talk. You definitely delivered. There was a lot of great takes, a lot of good conversations here, but why don't you tell us where we can find you online, where people can get to Catalyst, your magazine and whatever else you want to share. Well, thank you so much for having me on. It's been an absolute blast. Uh, again, I am Dalibor 
Borgiovich, the Indie Hype Man. I am at Indie Hype Man on Twitter. I'm at Indie Hype Man on YouTube and at Indie Hype Man on TikTok. So you can find me. I have a lot of comic takes. A podcast is on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform, of course. And uh, the magazine is thecatalyst.digital. So if you want the, a quarterly dose of indie goodness, uh, we, t- we have previews of comics. So we have a one, you know, either a partial or a full issue. Uh, sometimes it's prose, sometimes it's poetry, sometimes it's all sorts of things. You know, I'm a big believer in the indie creator space. Uh, you know, I am an indie creator myself. I'm, you know, my, my, what will be my first novella was published through the magazine. You know, that was kind of part of the impetus to make it is I needed something to hold myself to a deadline. And I said, I'm going to put this magazine out and promote other people's stuff, but my work is also going to be in it. So I was like, well, now I have to write this thing. So I ended up uh, writing my first novella through the magazine and has been in editing since then and i've been putting out a new story in that that is uh going to be i think relevant to a lot of people so it's a passion project of mine it started as this concept of being the steam if you're a gamer the steam of indie i wanted it to be like a platform where you could get your indie comics and get all indie stories and everything indie was going to be on this platform but as i as i do i start with the most macro version of an idea and then i had to pare it down i'm like well, how can i do all this now without you know hundreds of millions of dollars and a team of 50 developers uh so so the magazine is what it turned into. It is a completely private mailing list. There is no selling of data or anything. It's completely free for everybody involved. Uh, once in a while, I commission a cover. I commissioned the first issue cover and I commissioned issue 10, which was uh, my, my, the most recent issue, which had a homage to wizard number 10. Uh, I almost did the same thing and not ask permission. And I was like, <laughs> mm, I'm going to learn from history and I will ask for permission. Uh, so both characters are featured on there with enthusiastic permission, uh, especially after it came out and, and officially did the a wonderful cover art so yeah definitely check it out new issue is going to be dropping july 1st 2023 so uh if you're listening to this later many more issues have come out since Excellent. Well, very cool. And hey, you know where to find more Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. You can talk to us daily on our social media. Wizards Comics on Twitter, Wizards underscore comics on Instagram. Check out the Facebook group. Hey, maybe you'll encourage us to get a little more conversation going over there. Check out the YouTube channel. We got haul videos. We got our top 10 Wizard cover videos, among others. Lots of fun stuff coming there. In fact, by this time that you're hearing this, you will have been able to listen to our sixth annual Wizards. Wizard Halloween costume contest video and get our takes on all the cosplay that was going on there. Hey, want to also send you over to Comic Book School uh, with the former uh, Wizard staffers, Buddy Scalera and Mike Fasolo. If you missed it, Michael and I went over there and guested on their podcast. Uh, Buddy was sh- shared a whole bunch of Wizard swag that he had collected from his time working there, including stuff he pulled out of a dumpster, rare, you know, error print sheets and all this cool stuff. And so I was able to show off some of the collectibles we have in the archives. So one more thing for you to get excited about over there. And of course, if you want the full experience, you're listening to this great conversation. It went on a long time. Some of it might have been cut out. You want uncut? Go on over to patreon.com forward slash wizards comics. Five bucks a month gets you early release episodes, gets you a full scan of the issue to follow along, gives you the full wizards experience. There's a lot of extra fun that is coming out uh, in the Patreon space. So make sure you get on over there, support the podcast, and we'll give you all we can while you're waiting for the next episodes to drop. Speaking of waiting, the wait is over for our patrons who have already 
already signed up because one of the other perks is you get a shout out on each episode. So let's get it going with the new boy in the band. That's right, Gary Hutcherson. Gary, thanks so much for joining us. Fernando Pinto, Jeremy Daw, Greg Schuler, Melface Killer, Brian Acosta, Joe Marcello from the Dollar Bin Bandits podcast, Steve King, Gabriel Bustamantes, Denim Jedi, Mitchell Hall, Lee Markowitz, Stephen Forshaw, Mickey and Jason at the Retro Network, and of course, numero uno, Mark McDonald. Thanks so much for supporting the show, geeks. Thank you again for listening, and until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.